Hey, the new Waveform magazine's out. I just got mine in the mail, and it looks amazing, amazing content. If you're not subscribed, head over to waveformmagazine.com and get subscribed today. What are you waiting for, you dangus? Today's episode is brought to you by Patchworks Seattle. Their showroom is now open. If you live in Seattle, you can go inside and check it out. Uh, you can't try stuff out because, uh, you know, they can't, they can't have people handling things right now because of the, the pandemic and all. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of it. God, I hate the, I'm sure you've heard of it joke. I'm so sorry I did that to you. Uh, anyways, check out patchworks.com. Um, they recently, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they'll be there by the time you get to it, but I'd act fast. Um, open box deals because they had stuff out on the showroom floor and now you can get a pretty good discount on some stuff. In fact, I went down there and I bought a 4MS stereo triggered sampler. Uh, got that on an open box deal, saved myself some money. So yes, please visit patchworks.com, P-A-T-C-H-W-E-R-K-S.com to learn more about the open box deals and the new products that they have um, shipping everywhere in the U.S. I think they ship all around the world, so there's really no excuse not to shop at Patchworks. Patchworks.com. Hello and welcome back to Podular Modcast. My name is Tim Held. How are you faring out there? I'm really excited about this week's episode. Um, we have Jonathan Snipes from Clipping on the show. And if you're not familiar with Clipping, please go check out Clipping before you proceed with this podcast. Um, it's just some of my favorite music that I've come across in a really long time. Every once in a while, one of those bands comes along and kind of melts your brain in just the right way, and Clipping is that band for me. So it was very awesome to get the opportunity to uh, chat with Jonathan. And I'm going to keep this relatively brief because we chatted for two hours, and that um, I didn't know if I should do a two-parter. I'm not going to edit any of it out because it's a great conversation. That's why it went on for two hours. I didn't even realize. Um, and uh, yeah, so thank you, Jonathan, for giving me so much of your time. It's very generous of you. I want to tell you about uh, the Motormatic from Recovery Effects. 3HP ring modulator, super, super fun. Um, and it pairs very well with uh, the Recovery's Bad Comrade. And if you are into music like uh, that made by today's guests, you know, you might want to get yourself some recovery effects because it will help you along your journey in making some really, really cool, crunchy noise like this. Ah, oh, I love these modules so much. And uh, so you may have, you know, heard of these modules before because they've existed for a long time, but they used to be, um, I think, 12 HP. And now the Bad Comrade is 4 and the Motormatic is 3. Motormatic is 3 HP. Um, and each one is significantly less than the original, so you can't go wrong. What you hear right now is a drum beat that I put through the Motormatic. Um, just so much fun to use. What else? I want to say thank you to all you Patreon subscribers. I'm going to keep this intro short, but I have to say it. It's been a while, and I just appreciate your support so much. Um, I also appreciate everybody on the Discord server. That's been really fun. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get more active on there. I feel like my my uh, my zest for life is coming back a little bit. Um, so I'm going to uh, try to be more active on there. Um, have you guys seen my Needham Woodworks case? Who Raise your hands. Show of hands. Who has seen my Needham Woodworks case? Um, it's beautiful. I love it. 
And if you need yourself a nice piece of furniture, which doubles as a Eurorack case, I highly advise you go check out uh, needhamwoodworks.com. It's full of that eschatonic modular power. Uh, so maybe you're saying, I don't need a case right now. I'm building my own DIY case. Well, you are going to need power. So visit eschatonic modular, Needham Woodworks, daughter company. Um, I, I swear by it. Good, clean, quiet power. And I know I've been teasing this a long time. The new uh, After Later modules are coming out. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you've been saying that for a while. Well, coronavirus has made things weird about release times and, you know, design revisions and all that. But I have confirmation. Next week, we're going to get some new After Later audio modules. And these modules have been in my case for months, and I love them. Um, and I cannot wait to tell you about them. And uh, we're actually going to hear directly from Lenny and Clarissa about them next week. So uh, I'm really excited about that. I think that's enough rambling for now. Let's get into a really quick demo of uh, Void Modular's Sirius Veil. And then we're going to do this chat with Jonathan Snipes from Clipping. So everything that you hear right now is coming from the Ensemble Oscillator from 4MS going through the Sirius's Veil from Void Modular. It's a um, stereo or dual filter. I'm using it as a, as a dual filter right now, but it's, um, it's got a lot of really, really fun features on it. Um, my favorite of which is uh, there are two state inputs to send gates to um, to switch between your low pass, high pass, band pass, and notch filter. So I've got a, a constant clock changing one side, and then, then that clock is also um, hitting a, a Turing machine, so a random voltage, a random gate is now changing uh, the, the right side or the left side. I forgot which one I started with. Um, so it's basically it's cycling through different uh, the different um, frequency pass modes on this thing. But let's let's tear this patch apart. Let's go through what this thing is. So that's the ensemble oscillator, and I'm uh, basically just turning this cross frequency modulation up really high. I think I like that one the best. Um, so I can give a lot for this uh, this filter to grab onto. So we're in low pass mode, so let's check that out. So we've got the A and B outputs from the ensemble oscillator going into the left and right. So I'm using the master cutoff right now, but each one has their own cutoff. And of course, those are both CV controllable. So let's check that out. And what I really like about this is each one has, there's an attenuator, attenuverter for the CV inputs. So that's pretty fun. Also, there's a, there's a volume input for each side. So if you have mismatched signals, you can get them nice and level, which I really like. What is also really fun about this is, so right now I'm controlling um, the two different cutoffs, but there's a master cutoff um, CV in as well. So I can put another signal into that. 
Actually, I'm going to put the fast one into the master and put slower ones into the... So you can get this like really cool like galloping type thing. And like I said, CV attenuation for all of those. There is a resonance inputs for each side as well. And um, there's also VCA inputs. So right now I'm just using a bunch of different signals from uh, the Instro DivKid Oct to uh, change all the different cutoffs and the, uh, the VCAs. Let's take those VCAs out really quick. My favorite aspect is... Let me get a random gate coming out of this square clock here. Oops. Okay. So I'm going to put a square wave into one of the state ends for the left side. So you can hear it cycling through there, and now I'm going to put a random gate out into the other state. So there you have it. That's Sirius's Veil from Void Modular. That's S-I-R-I-U-S apostrophe Veil from Void Modular, V-O-I-D. Um, this thing has been uh, really inspirational lately. I've been I've been hitting the ground running with this with this module. Uh, my last performance for the Colorado Modular Synth Society. Um, if you caught that a few weeks ago, um, I used this filter in every single one of those patches. Um, and if you're wondering, patches? Wait, what? I did three mini performances in three different locations, and it's been a lot of fun um, to do that. I'm going to do more this weekend. But uh, go over to Colorado Modular Synth Society to see me um, using the Void Modular Sirius's Veil in the field, as they say. Um, thank you, Void Modular, for sending me this thing. It's been so much fun, and I would love it if you Pod Mod Bods checked it out. All right, let's get into this episode. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, yeah. I got to say, I'm trying to, I've been thinking of how to word this, but I'd say every two or three years, I find something new to listen to that is, it kind of meets, there, there's this, there's this kind of like gold standard that I have <laughs> where it's like something that's like kind of blows my mind. Like I, you know, when you think you've heard it all. Yeah, you've gone down the rabbit hole. You think you've heard it all, and then something new comes. And the, like the most recent thing was uh, a couple of years ago. I don't, I'm not sure if you're fam familiar with Mount Erie. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think like like what Phil Elvrum does with like indie 
and then just noise and black metal like this. It was just the perfect storm. And I have, and I've been searching for something like that again for a long time. This is my long winded way of saying like clipping is that. Uh, that's really it's, nice. No, no, exactly what you mean. And it feels like, you know, as you get older, that happens less and less, right? Definitely. Just because yeah. of, I think, overexposure, right? It's like when you first start listening to records, it's like every fifth record you hear blows your mind because you didn't know that a record could do that because everything is new (laughs) you know and that's why those records remain special you know like i have Mm -hmm. such fondness for music that i don't think i would like at all now if i came to it in context but at the time it felt like earth shattering you know absolutely because i just had no idea where anybody was coming from or what existed or what you know yeah yeah and and i think what you what like what listening to to what you guys do lately like it's made me realize what what it is I'm looking for, and that is kind of like I love noise, but I don't want to listen to just noise. <laughs> but it's the artful, it's the artful dropping of noise into something that is otherwise, for lack of a better word, listen toable for most people. You know, like I I, I do lo- I do love like going to I, I prefer seeing noise live than listening to it to be honest. Um, or if I am going to listen to noise music, it's kind of like either walking through the woods or oddly enough, laying down in like a dark mm-hmm. room or something. Yeah, sure. Um, well, noise but is, it's not something I'm always wanting. It's, it's music that does like, it is not background music, you know, it sort of commands your attention it, because it, absolutely. because it, it, uh, sort of operates, it tries to operate against all of the sort of inherent principles that, that, that I think are like on some level biological of, of harmony and octave and you know, sort mm-hmm. of, uh, and rhythm, um, tries to sort of eschew all of those and just kind of, kind of operate purely timbrely. And, and I think to appreciate it, you do really have to pay attention to it. Obviously you can put on mm-hmm. noises, background music, but if you don't really like sit and listen to it, um, I feel like it <laughs> just becomes noise. Right. And you don't hear yeah. the nuance <laughs> and you don't, and you don't sort of understand it. I mean, there's something interesting yeah. to me that happens with genre, like genre in general, I think is sort of flawed, but like there, there's something that interesting to me that happens with like conceptual music too. like, like music that starts out as, as sort of purely conceptual as like, well, what if here's a thing I've thought of that's possible? What if I do that to make music? And then sort of what it sounds like is almost, almost inconsequential. I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that, but like, but kind of the way that, John Cage started composing with chance because he's like, well, this is a way to compose uh, and it might be beautiful at the end of it, but it doesn't have to. I don't have to go into it with an, with an aesthetic in mind. I can go into it with a process in mind, right? There's this way, yeah, idea definitely. of making process music that I think a lot of noise started that way too. It's like, let's feed the mixer back into itself because we can. <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> and I think maybe... I mean, this is a huge generalization, but I think I think something happened, right? That that, that 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 some of the people who started making noise were doing it to explore boundaries, not necessarily with an aesthetic result. And then the next generation, like myself, grow up, and you listen to that stuff early enough, and you develop taste in it, and suddenly you do find it beautiful. I think this is something mm-hmm. that Bill Bill Hudson said uh, in clipping with me about specifically about John Borges and about the music of pedestrian deposit is, is like, he's like, it's a misunderstanding of noise. It's taking this, this thing that's supposed to be ugly, unwanted, rejected sound and making it beautiful. 
It's like finding mm-hmm. finding aesthetic musical pleasure in something that the whole point was not to have any, <laughs> right? And yeah, then right. and then <laughs> and then developing taste in that, and then making a whole catalog of of like I mean the, the pedestrian deposit records are to me the most beautiful noise. I mean, there's so many people making great noise records, but pedestrian deposit is like it's true. It is the antithesis of like you know early. Mersbau and things, right? Which which are these kind of, I mean, I, a lot of those are really beautiful too, but uh, but they're very uncomposed, right? It's about this kind mm-hmm. of explosion and this expression, uh, and then you know, John, people like Borges and uh, Sickness, who we've also worked with, and um, uh, you know, come along and and make these like gorgeous crafted compositions that I really, that I also can really just. I mean, I, I still I still try to give them my attention if I listen to them, but I but those they've become so musical that I can kind of put them on, and that's really I mean we're kind of operating in that same trajectory, right? We mm-hmm. definitely you know like I mean Borges is a friend and colleague, and we're of the same sort of age and generation. We listen to the same stuff, mm-hmm. and we all kind of grew up together, you know. Um, and and I think we're just we're doing the same thing, but. Uh, but I also think that we're not making noise music. We're making rap records. Definitely. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, and I, I don't think going back to like talking about Mount Erie, I don't think Mount Erie necessarily makes noise music. They, it's, it's a little bit of an injection in there. Yeah. And what I love about like kind of li- like the uh, listening to this stuff, developing a taste for it and um, having it become musical has done something really like that I that I'm so thankful for and really fascinating and I think people have talked about this Brian you know and, and whatnot but like sometimes I'll be listening I, li- I live right under the, the flight path for mm-hmm. SeaTac airport mm-hmm. and I'm Great. by a busy street yeah. there's always sounds going and sometimes the frequencies line up nicely where I'll stop and listen to it I'm like this is this might sound a little like uh like too much trying to be poetic but sometimes there's like a a song quality to what's going on around me. And I've been really enjoying that newfound, like, oh, I can listen to stuff that's not music and just, like, enjoy the song of ex- existence almost. Oh, something. yeah. I mean, music stops, and starts and stops when you start and stop listening, right? I mean, I think that's, that's mm-hmm. true, right? Music just is sound in time, uh, and that can be decided by a composer or a musician, but it could also be decided by a listener, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think... S- go ahead. No, 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 go for it. I was just going to say, with like with noise music, field recording, and I think to um, some extent some modular music, it there's um, there's a level to it where I've always struggled with the idea of what what is the purpose of making this, you know, like because if I'm making music and I'm going to record it, then at the end of the day, technically, I want people to enjoy it. But sometimes I make stuff that I'm not so sure a lot of people enjoy, but I enjoy making it. Mm-hmm. So it's like this newfound experience in in the act of doing almost like a zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance aspect of doing it um but i but i'm always still kind of questioning like if i'm gonna play live how much like i want to enjoy it of course i don't want to just totally like sell sell out quote unquote or whatever and make something that i think people will like but at the same time i don't want to just go up there and musically masturbate or whatever you know just like do whatever I want at my whim. And yeah. I've always kind of struggled with that because I feel like true artists will be like, you have, it's true expression, you do what's in you. And 
I don't, uh, I think that's a dangerous road. I, 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 I mean, definitely, like, uh, art is inherently for an audience. And if it's not for an audience, I think, great, then you don't need to show it to anybody. Exactly. Um, and if you've made the leap to showing it to somebody, I, I think you have to consider them. Now, that being said, I think audiences don't know what they want some of the time, right? And that, and that yeah. like, a lot of an artist's job is to, like, it's like a shaman, right? You go into the, into the wilderness and you have an experience <laughs> and you say, I found a beautiful thing on my journey. Let me show uh -huh. it to you. But that's different than, than just being like, here's public therapy right? <laughs> or something, <laughs> you know, and I, our art can be therapy too. And it can be therapeutic. And I make things that I don't show to anybody, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and I, and I, that process is sometimes valuable in, the journey to finding something that you want to show to somebody but but I do think you have to consider the audience or you don't but if you don't consider the audience then I also think you can't get mad when people don't like it you know I've I've right. heard so many people come like so many artist friends who like complain that they don't have any kind of like commercial success and I'm like well but you're, you're intentionally making something that people don't like. Like you're intentionally, yeah. you know what I mean? You're intentionally flying in the face of every like convention and every like, uh, every, you know, everything that, that does have some sort of commercial success or does have some sort of popular appeal. And that's fine too. Like that's interesting but you don't get to have it both ways. Like you might, mm -hmm. and that's incredibly lucky. Like if you do just willfully and angrily make things that are against every possible, you know, ethos and tide and zeitgeist, right? Like, sure, somebody might find it and you might herald a new revolution in art, but that's not a given. I mean, nothing's, no. nothing's no. a given in art. All you really have is a given in art, in a career in art, is that you get to do it, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, and, and so your practice kind of has to be enough at a certain point, because otherwise, like, you're just going to be unhappy if you're mm -hmm. doing it for money or for fame or for, um, really any other reason than, hey, I get to do this every day, then you're, you're, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I, f I feel like that somehow translates with, I mean, outside of the, the arena of like, you know, radio music or pop music, I think, I think intent translates through music, um, you know, like, hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like people have really good, people have better bullshit meters than they may know, I think, hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like authenticity and, and like, genuine um, creation, it shows. And I think when, the more genuine it is and the more, like, natural it comes to the people, I think there's, I think, I want to believe that there's some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some sort of correlation between the two, some sort of, uh, you know, relationship as one goes up, the other goes up or something like that. But now I'm kind of just making shit up as I talk. Yeah. 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 But, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, I, I have trouble with the word authenticity, uh, yeah. in general. I mean, I think that implies, I, you know, and it's there, look, there's no way to take a piece of like art or a piece of music or anything out of, the context in which you're experiencing it and out of the context of what you happen to know about the people who made it and what, you know, there, there's always context for everything. Like nothing exists without, mm -hmm. without context. 
but I think there is a trend, and I and I authenticity is kind of like a like a triggering, <laughs> you know, like a buzzword for <laughs> yeah. me, like a trigger word for me, because because <laughs> especially I think in music and in music journalism, especially and in rap music journal journalism, especially especially, there's this like this idea that the true that the true artist is like a is like a savant who doesn't know what they're doing, you know? There's this idea that Yeah. That, yeah. Um you want the artist to kind of be as dumb as possible and as as <laughs> as, as authentic as possible, right? As like ignorant as possible. It's like yeah, yeah. outsider. You want everybody to be Wesley Willis or Daniel Johnson or something, which I, I was think just is going to say something like Daniel Johnson, totally. Which yeah. is also like reductive wonder, that they don't know what they're doing, right? Like it's a reductive mm-hmm. idea that they don't have intention in what they're doing and that their work is only, only like has meaning because it's been like, you know, defined by a journalist. And I think a lot of writing about rap music is like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's particularly, like, it's particularly annoying to me because I think a lot of writing about clipping, uh, is is all is is anger at the inability to do that to us because we clearly like went to college and know what we're doing, you know. <laughs> and then and and but the, 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 then this like absolutely like racist shitty assumption that Young Thug doesn't know what he's doing and that you get to say like yeah. oh this is outsider art and this is experimental or DJ Screw is like is like music concrete or something that you get to say that because you learn those fancy words and when we come in and we say. Hey, we're making music concrete. You say, "Oh, that's elitist and inauthentic and bad music." It's like, I mean, sure, tell us we're making bad music and tell us why. But like, talk about the music. Like, let's let's mm-hmm. not talk about who we are anymore. Let's like let's like actually talk about the music that we're doing. And I have yet to. I don't know. I would love to see somebody write a review that actually talks about our music and says that it's <laughs> bad and like actually deconstructs it and tells us right. where, where we think we're failing in doing the thing that we're trying to do uh and i have i have yet like all of our bad reviews are just about oh this fucking hamilton guy and this film composer and this phd think they can make authentic rap music fuck them you know yeah and, and yeah it's almost I mean, like meta it's almost like meta crit- criticism like you said it's yeah, not well, actually it's, talking about your actual music it's like yeah the metadata and, around it or something which i mean i have a, i have a hard time with music criticism in general i don't i don't know i well, yeah. I, I don't really see the point of it anymore. I mean, like... I I don't either, yeah. Like, now, I don't really understand the point of record reviews. Now that you can instantly hear anything you want to hear, at, like, the touch of a button, like, any album I want to hear, I'm, like, ten seconds away from hearing, you know, at any yeah, time right. now. <laughs> so why do I need Rolling Stone to tell me something's good or not, right? Like, I can just listen to it and decide if I want to hear it. I mean, music mm-hmm. reviews are interesting if you're, like, following a particular reviewer. You know, like, I understand, the, I understand the, like, the point of Anthony Fantano, like, or, like, or, like, or very specific critics who are like, hey, I am curating a profile of taste, and I like to talk mm-hmm. about things that fit into that profile, but I don't know, I really don't understand the point of, like, a bad review, and I really don't understand the point of, like, of, like, an entity with an opinion, like a Rolling Stone or a Spin or a Pitchfork or, like, a... I'm, right. Like, I'm totally into reading what Mark Masters has to say or what Tom Brihan has to say or, like, individual writers. I'm interested in those people, and I like that they get, like, columns and they get, they get to do real journalism. Uh, mm-hmm. But, like, you know, 150 words 
and a and a and a number out of ten on an album. It's like who the fuck is that for anymore? I really just don't know. Right. Like, I, and clearly people like it because it keeps happening. But I just don't. I don't get it. I mean, I guess the argument you could make an argument that it has value for just you know spreading the word and cutting through the noise of all the releases that are out there. But I've always you know I I dabbled in music criticism like mm-hmm. ten years ago and you know um and I I would read reviews, especially out of something like Pitchfork, and they would just kind of be snotty. And I was like, well, then why are you talking about this? Like, obviously, the, some, like, and I, the, the manager reached out to you or whoever reached out to you, sent you this album, said, will you review it? You listened to it, you didn't like it, and then you shit on it. And it's like, um, but, uh, you know, on the same time, I don't, I don't like, you know, like the world of being a sycophant or anything, but I took the approach of I only reviewed it if I liked it because I don't want to, like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean somebody else won't, you know, and I don't want to, like, be responsible of maybe somebody not finding it because they saw that number and it wasn't high enough for them to even check it out, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, yeah, the, 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 practice, the practice of assigning everything in our lives a number between zero and ten yeah. <laughs> is so confusing and baffling and destructive to me. I just don't. I don't. Everything. Every fucking thing. The doctor. Like, How even, much does it hurt? Is it a six or is it a nine? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. It <laughs> doesn't work that way. Um, I don't know actually how describing pain works. In the, I don't know. Right. How, I don't know a better way of describing pain, but it doesn't work like that. I, you know, I've been I've been really I've been really loving. Tom, speaking of music journalism, Tom Berhan's um, uh, column in Stereo Gum, where he's reviewed every uh, number one. Uh, single from the from the inception of the charts on onward. He's oh wow! In, he's in the eighties now. <laughs> They're so good. But I do I do just like rankle every time he mentions another song. He's like this song, this other it, it relates to this other song which only climbed to number six on the charts. And then in parentheses he'll be like it's an eight. I'll be like. <laughs> Dude, what are you doing, man? Like, I mean, I understand it. I, like, I, it's almost like funny. You know, right? But right. this idea that you're supposed to look at everything, songs, people, you know, like movies, everything, and just like instantly know, like, oh, it's about a six. That thing, <laughs> that that person, ooh, she's a nine. Yeah. You know, it's like fuck she's you. That's so gross. That's <laughs> so gross and stupid. <laughs> like a not. Helpful. There's a lot of gross, stupid stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. I know. Maybe this is not the thing to get it on my horse Right? About. Yeah, it's a choose your battles <laughs> thing. No, but I know. I, I this is. I, I got to say, very rarely do we kick off. Uh, kick off one of the talks with just <laughs> we dove right into the philosophical pool, and yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, I'm like, this is kind of, I love when it happens organically because you try to force something like this and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I definitely want to talk about, I want to talk about clipping, but I want to like hear your story. Oh, and sure. You know, like, yeah. and I always, I always like to start with what's the youngest age that you can remember a song? Like, is there a song or, a, or an album? And it d- doesn't have to be the thing that makes you a musician. But is there an age or a, an album or an artist that, like, that's when music kind of grabbed a hold of you? And it was like, from then on, it was, it well, was the thing. My household was very musical. My, 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 my mom was a violinist, uh, and my okay. dad was uh, not... She wasn't a professional violinist. I, she, um, I think she could have been. 
um, mm-hmm. from from hearing people talk. She was very very good, but she uh, my whole family is Seventh Day Adventist. And, oh wow! Okay. And the orchestra that her teacher encouraged her to join played on Saturday on the Sabbath, and so her mom wouldn't let her do it. You know. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. But she was asked to join the like adult orchestra that he was a part of when she was a teenager. Um, so I, my understanding is that she's very good, and I've heard recordings of her um, as a child and things that are charming and, and delightful. Anyway, uh-huh. she's a violinist, um, and she even played in the community orchestras and stuff as I was growing up, and my dad was a lover of opera specifically. I mean, okay. classical music in general, but opera specifically, and a huge audiophile. We always had very nice, very loud stereos in the house, just blaring classical music. So I really, really grew up with classical music happening all the time and I as a child loved the like really insane bombastic stuff so I loved like the mm-hmm. 1812 overture or I thought Beethoven's Wellington's victory was just the coolest thing in the world because it has gunfire in it you know and I <laughs> and hey I'm st- I still like songs with gun sounds right <laughs> so yeah. not a lot has changed right um, <laughs> um and but but like pop music and like like rock music and the radio and stuff didn't really have a place in our house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I remember my dad had these records by Don Dorsey um, called Bach Busters and Beethoven or Bust that were Bach and then Beethoven played on like the DX7 basically. It was like a, DX, okay. a little love letter to the, the, the new DX7 technology. I should look at the liner notes of this and figure out what it was actually used. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't think that I think it was like early digital stuff. Like it was they were on mm-hmm. Telarc, this classical label, whose like big whole selling point was like pure digital recordings. It was like when CDs were first new, and so they were like the mm-hmm. crispest, cleanest, most digital, like you know, no hiss things that you could imagine. And these records, which I you know, I'm a little ashamed that I didn't find like Westy, uh, Wendy Carlos, and it's out to me at first that no Don Dorsey was my was my guy, nah. who's also he's the guy that wrote the music for the Electric Light Parade and, and Disneyland nah. and stuff. Uh, um, but but that was like that was that was stuff that blew my mind. It was like oh here are these like forbidden sounds, right? These sounds that I only associate with little snippets of like pop music in the radio which i also as a child was just like oh yeah that's trash music because my parents say so and i'm gonna listen to classical music and parents Uh, it was really my mom my dad had like pretty wide taste in music mm -hmm. um but so these don dorsey records i was allowed to listen to they were like they had like you know synthesized drums on them and they were like weird robot noises and things and i Mm -hmm. and i thought they were just the coolest things uh ever um my dad died when i was eight uh, and left I'm behind sorry. this like massive record collection, um, and so that's that's where a lot of my music came from. And I immediately like gravitated to the tiny little like 20th century section, and that's when I found he did have Wendy Carlos and Isao Tomita, and I found those later, um, and recognized immediately that those were sort of <laughs> like classier approaches to what Don uh-huh, Dorsey was right. doing. <laughs> I love those Don Dorsey records. The Bach one is actually like pretty good. The Beethoven one like jumps the shark quite a bit but um yeah (laughs) um, but um and i found philip glass that way and that just you know and he had like a tiny little selection of rock records that i could like sneak listen to when my mom was out of the house and like i found like yes that way and um 
he had the Lalo Schifrin Rock Requiem, which is not good, but it really, like... <laughs> I mean, I love Lalo Schifrin now, um, and that record is really wild. Things like that. Um, is this the Bay Area? No, I grew up down here. I'm in Southern California, uh, so okay. near L.A. Okay. I grew up in Riverside, California. Okay. Uh, Bill and David are from the Bay, uh, and they've known okay. each other since third grade, and I... I oh was down, wow! I was, okay, I was down here doing my own thing. Um, didn't meet them till later, but okay. So you find all, so by the time you get to like Philip Glass and kind of you know this this kind of modern um, you know synthesizer music and modern yeah. composer music. Um, how old are you then? I mean, like eleven, twelve, something like that. Oh wow! Like I'm still okay. pretty young, and I can remember putting on Philip Glass for the first time and just like kind of laughing. You know, like, because it like b- broke my brain because I was like, it's uh-huh. so repetitive, and there's electric guitars and these weird like synthesizer sounds. It's like, what is this? And I hated it, but I like was determined to understand it. You know, uh-huh. and there was, and there, I mean, there is something like really, like, I, you know, I grew up with all this music, but I, I am, uh, uh, I still have a huge chip on my shoulder about not really being like a quote-unquote real musician right like I never went to music school I suck at practicing music I'm a an actively bad like performative musician in like a traditional like classical sense like I I can Mm -hmm. barely play a keyboard and I try to not do it in front of people (laughs) as much as possible (laughs) you know um and I took violin lessons because my mom played the violin and I thought that was cool and I sucked at practicing and she got sick of forcing me so we quit doing that and then I did trumpet lessons and we did the same thing and I did I actually took bagpipe lessons and we did the same thing and so I can't play any of these instruments so I have like this like inherent sort of uh, like classical music lives in my head, but I actually don't have the like, you know, the, the the ability in my fingers or even like a lot of the sort of basic musicianship chops that one would think I would have having that sort of classical music upbringing. Right. Um, but there is something about like American minimalist music, and I, you know, Steve uh, Steve Steve Reichfeld Glass, Terry Riley Lamont Young, is that the 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 compositional process is like pretty easy to grasp hearing that stuff at least like mm-hmm. like structure like the 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 tonal rhythmic you know um chordal structures of that stuff harmonic structures of that stuff is is kind of easy like you can listen to piano phase as a non-musician and know what's happening you mm-hmm. know um right and like and like listening to philip glass is like that too you know you hear those arpeggios and you know, like structurally, what's happening. It's, I mean, it's the musical equivalent of my kid could do that, right? And which is like <laughs> yeah. this, which is this utterly deceptive, like stupid idea um, that something that something that's in theory simple is not good art, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, and so, and so, I was kind of struck by in Philip Glass's music, the repetition and the arpeggio and the very like sort of simple harmonic progressions. And cause I, cause I think I, I think I gravitated to it because even though I didn't like it at first, I understood it musically in a way that like other 20th century music is a little bit hard to grasp if you're not educated in a certain way. Like it sounds like maybe there's like an, uh, an element of it, like, Oh, I could do that. Like, like, was there like a level of where you wanted to participate and could never felt like you could or something? Yeah, like, yeah. I feel like I'm. No, I think that's right. Um, you know, like, 
you know, especially someone who doesn't like not that Philip Glass music is easy to play. It requires like a right. rote and a and a rigor that's actually insanely hard. Um, but and especially like as I got my first computer and started getting into the idea of making music with computers, it was like, oh, I can make loops on a computer and explore these same kinds of ideas, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, my mm-hmm. early music, which... My high school music, which none of exists anymore, I think, thankfully, uh, you know, <laughs> is a lot of, like... Um, well, it's a lot of, like, comedy and novelty songs, but is also, like, a lot of, um, you know, like... Um, arpeggios and... You know, like, oh, this cool, like, three over two thing that I heard in a fellow glass thing that I can, like, mm-hmm. you know, replicate in MIDI, even though I can't play it, yeah. you know, and so. You know, it's funny. I feel like I have almost like a 180 degree, like, I have, I, have a, I have a gripe about my musical past as a musician and as a listener, but it uh-huh. almost is the exact opposite. Oh, interesting. Like, I grew up, like, put it in context, you know, like, I grew up in this town where there was only a country radio station. And yeah. so like as a young kid, it was, it was Garth Brooks, Dwight Yoakam and Ro- well, Roy Orbison, which is somebody that I still like. Yeah. Absolutely. Nothing wrong love. with Roy Orbison. Um, but then, you know, getting, I'm, I'm right at the, the, the perfectly wrong age to get on board with like alternative music, like post grunge, yeah. yeah. like when it got super commercial. So like I look back and my, you know, childhood through maybe like early twenties, I look back and like, man, I listened to some really bad music and I didn't really find like, you know, I found like, like Flying Lotus was like the first thing that blew my mind is what music can be this. And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. But I mean, I was 26 or 27. So I thought already, like I was in metal bands and I was in pop bands. And now here I am trying to make, you know, music that I think is more expressive of myself. But I, sometimes I find myself falling into making a, a more like pop structured song and, and and it's kind of like aggravating it's like so i hear your your upbringing i'm like man i wish i would have been in, like steeped in oh. in philip glass in my teenage years well okay <laughs> but the stuff i'm leaving out right is that i mean I, I you know i didn't grow up in like a thriving metropolis of of like uh and i'm, I'm an only child and so what i had was my dad's record collection right and so i you know so i have the same i have the same like everyone has this relationship with their own music taste except for maybe mm-hmm. bill and david i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh but you know i have the same kind of relationship with with my musical upbringing versus theirs like you know and i'm leaving out like i'm talking about philip glass but i'm not talking about how much i loved Mannheim steamroller or danny elfman or mm-hmm. you know like oh, yeah. things that i kind of am a little cringy or cheesy you know think are a little cheesy now although i will mm-hmm. fucking ride or die for the first Five Mannheim Steamroller records, not the Christmas ones. Anyway, but well, uh, so isn't it weird how some like <laughs> I I will ride or die for the first four Garth Brooks albums, and I think he is out of his mind, and I think he like dude. made country music like worse, and I think it's yeah. bad, but I love it. Yeah. I love those albums that resonate with me as a you kid. You can't you can't ignore that stuff, and I, you know, and and also I think it's well, I mean, like if I have regrets about my like musical upbringing, it's that I wasn't like listening to rap music sooner like maybe mm-hmm. i mean it sounds like maybe you had kind of a similarly like white 100 there, there's like a there's like a white suburban 
90s particularly i mean maybe it's still happening kind of ch like like teenage knee-jerk reaction of like i don't listen to rap or country that's like this like yeah, fucking absolutely like racist classist like knee-jerk argument that's like i'm not definitely not a black person and i'm definitely not one of those white poor people either like exactly that I, that no I'm, there was there was, if so hate, the rap I, yeah the rap that i liked in junior high and high school was it was a secret like, yeah, you know, I don't right? listen to rap, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, yeah. I had, you know, I had, uh, and I was also kind of the weird, like this, this weird kind of like white desert Island of music. Like, like I said, the only radio stations country, the only people around me are white. I'm in the small mountain yeah. town of Washington state. And I'm basically at the mercy of my older classmates and friends, older siblings. Right. Yeah. And, and so like as a kid, you know, like. Luckily, there was some good stuff in there, but it, it was, yeah, mostly metal, like a lot of Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne, Metallica. And then, yeah, we could, you know, I couldn't, couldn't like rap because it was, I would like to say it was less of a race thing and more of that's what the jocks listen to. But there's definitely a race, racial component. There, to there it, definitely is. Back, and look, I know? mean, like people's taste are what their taste is, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, like... But, but I do think like the music industry genres things in a particular way that like, that is maybe unhelpful, right? That like closes people mm -hmm. off to things that they would or wouldn't like. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, the rap music that I got into early, like, I, again, I remember having this like fascination with the rap music that would cross my path and this like, I don't understand this. I want to know more about it. But it also felt like it wasn't for me in a way that I kind of regret not being yeah. more proactive. I, you know, and I, um, the first rap record I got like really obsessed with totally weirdly, uh, was this French group. I am, um, they're from Marseille mm -hmm. and they were kind of a super group of a bunch of other, um, uh, French rappers, uh, and like sons of man is on the record from Wu-Tang that, that I, that I got into. And I was like, I just thought, I also, I mean, I also went through like a phase of just not liking words, like not liking music with lyrics at all. Yeah. Just like not liking mm -hmm. any, like, like I liked instrumental music and I, I guess I liked They Might Be Giants because they were funny. You know, I was like, uh -huh. I didn't understand yeah. the point if you weren't going to be like funny. Everything else just felt like cheesy to me and kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. um, and so French rap was a way of me like getting into like that kind of the world of beats and sound production and the kind of flow and the feel of it without really understanding everything. I took French, uh, for way more years than I should admit, given that I can't speak French. <laughs> um, Same with Japanese. <laughs> nice. <for me. laughs> uh, and I remember my French teacher in high school, like just like, being horrified by this record that I had found because it was, <laughs> as she put it, le hardcore. <laughs> and, <it was> like, <laughs> and she wanted me to listen to MC Solar, uh, who's like, you know, much friendlier. Uh, but I just um, want to say that la hardcore is like the least hardcore thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's so dorky. Um, but, um, but that was the first record that I really, really just like memorized and I, and I can mm -hmm. still put it on and phonetically I know all of those. those I love how songs. the music from your youth is just in your DNA yeah, like that. It's there. And, 
But I wish, my, the, yeah, I wish I was like that with Public Enemy records and things that I that I came to yeah. later and that I love, but I don't have that innate that those, those, that's not in my in my DNA like it should be. Yeah, yeah, I wish I could have explored it more. Like my mine was I had in a in a jewel case. It wasn't even the real case. I had my my cousin's. Uh, Wu-Tang Forever Disc nice. 1. Nice. So I always wondered what Disc 2 was all about, yeah. but I only had Disc 1. Oh, and I still so listen. And that, that was something I would listen to on the bus and like not tell my friends that I had like the Wu-Tang <laughs> Clan. Because I thought, turns out we were all doing that. We were yeah. all listening to rap. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. It, this weird like way of racializing and politicizing music taste. Um, that the record companies came up with that is just is so harmful that I, mm-hmm. I think doesn't exist as much anymore. Uh, I think the internet kind of is helping yeah, that go and, away. And the fact that you can't make millions and millions of dollars off of record sales is probably has something to do with it too. Well, I'd there's that. Maybe yeah. I mean, that's yeah. probably, honestly, that's probably good. Um, although the people still making millions and millions of dollars are not the musicians. It's... Right, yeah, I exactly. Know. I don't yeah. know. The, yeah, I, I like the idea that there can be like a comfortable middle class of musicians. We're not there yet, but we're closer than we've mm-hmm. ever been, I think. Definitely. I, yeah, that's, that's, a whole other, that's a whole other can of beans that I, I definitely haven't read or thought about enough to, uh, to be brave enough to, to talk about. But I, I, I like <laughs> that line of thinking. Um, so I'll, so you, get, you, get into, you get a computer and start making loops. So is this in high school then when you start kind of... Yeah, I was pretty late to the computer game, which now doesn't feel late, you know, as time passes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I was definitely like the last of my friends to have a computer, like a real computer. Mm-hmm. I had... I, I was early to computers in general. My elementary school had a computer lab with um, Commodore 64s that our computer yeah. teacher had very wisely in retrospect now taken the sound the sound cards out of all of because <laughs> I was like why doesn't the play command do anything he's like I got a room full of 40 of these things <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> like, I had a Commodore 64 monitor that I used for my PlayStation that's what, that oh, was my nice. PlayStation monitor nice. in middle school oh that's that's great yeah so I learned basic programming on those and I like I mean, I guess I came to music in the same way that I came to every like interaction on with computers is that it was another thing I could do on a computer. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, you know, when it was when it, I wanted to get a computer at home and I really wanted a Commodore sixty four, which even our computer teacher in the eighties was like, mm, "Don't, this is not, <laughs> this is not, there's not a lot of longevity in this thing." Um, <laughs> Though it, it now, you know, that I look back on, like, the tracker scenes and things, like, that would have been a cool way to start composing music if I had gotten, you know, like, an Amiga or something. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. But, um, uh, yeah, some friends of ours gave us their old computer when they were upgrading, which was a PC XT which couldn't okay. couldn't That's run. how we got all our electronics, by the way. Yeah, I'm feeling I, that. <laughs> and I and I think it was mostly because my mom is like a severe like technophobe and luddite. Like my um, dad was weird like that too, but he didn't like we didn't have I didn't have uh, I mean PlayStation was the first console that I had, mm-hmm. and that's you know that didn't come out until I was you know in my teens. So we we would we would have a, a Nintendo every once in a while, but he would. He didn't. You know, I don't want my kids playing video games. Oh, my yeah. mom hated video games too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I would have to kind of sneak those. 
Um, <laughs> God, this is so bad. I, I mean, she'll never hear this, but I, I, she decided like we were in the early days of the internet too. And she decided that I was spending way too much time on the internet. So she like, you know, it was a dial up. Mm -hmm. Um, so she had to put in her password every time to, um, to log into the internet. And I used a, used a key logger to steal her internet password <laughs> so that I could get into the internet whenever I wanted. And then like, she would hear the modem dialing in from the other room and be like, are you getting on the internet? And I was like, at the time there was this company Juno that offered free internet access that basically didn't work. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm uh -huh. using this free Juno thing. And I had the CD. It was so bad. It was so bad. <laughs> it was a bad child. I wasn't actually that bad, but that, that was a bad thing that I did. <laughs> um, I've never told uh, I've never told her that. Um and I probably it's won't. It's better than stealing your mom's cigarettes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose. Um yeah, but no, so I had this PC XT that couldn't run Windows. It had a five and a quarter inch floppy drive. Um but it could run QBasic. Um and well first it was GW Basic and then I got QBasic. Um and it had a little speaker. So I could use the like play command to make little beeps. And mm -hmm. like, this is the first computer music I made, uh, was like transcribing like the Indiana Jones theme song <laughs> on a monophonic <laughs> sine wave beep. <laughs> Probably took you days to do it. And then oh you finally God. push play and it and plays it goes, in 30 seconds. Do, you're like, do, well, do, that's do, the thing do, I did. Do, do. And that took two days and I was done, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Uh no, so that <laughs> that was how I first started making music on a computer, I guess. And then later, like when I was in high school, um I was like we really I really need to be able to write. I was writing my papers on that computer in WordPerfect with oh, a dot wow. with a dot matrix printer and I was like this is untenable, mother. Yeah. Uh and so she got us a our, our Windows 95 computer that I installed cracked versions yeah. of Cakewalk and Rebirth and noteworthy composer on and I had a Yamaha PSR something or other like one of their home keyboards with like you know the general MIDI sounds and like the expanded Yamaha uh, mm -hmm. additional MIDI sounds um, XG was it called anyway so I got into like the a lot of emulation stuff yeah just like a lot of like you know like a really cheap, I don't know what the synthesis was like in those things, actually. Uh, it feels like just like a really low, low quality rompler, you know, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. like if you took a Korg M1 and took all of the fun out of it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> made it preset only, <laughs> would be that thing. Um, so you start composing your own music then when you get this set up? Yeah, totally. But in the same way that I was doing everything on a computer, that I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm using it to write comedy skits because I want to be the next Monty Python. And oh, I'm using it to do <laughs> graphic design. And I'm using it, you know, I was like, I cracked Photoshop and I was like learning how that worked. And like, oh, I'm like, you know, opening up the WAD files for Doom and seeing what's in there and replacing uh -huh. all the sounds, which is how I like, that's like my first like sound design stuff was like replacing all okay. of the sounds in a doom wad file with like Simpsons noises or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like shit like that. I'd love to see a video of that. Oh, no, no, you actually wouldn't. <laughs> like, it's not, like, it's not good. That's not good. Um, 
That's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to pretend it is. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's better we'll in our it minds. It's better in our memories and our minds. <laughs> or, or like, you know, like using Photoshop or MS Paint or something to edit the like little, you know, the little, the little icons for the units in Civilization 2 or something, you know, and uh-huh. making my own units and like... Like, I was just, like, into playing on the computer, you know? Mm-hmm. The computer was not yet, like, just the tool with which we use to do things. It was, like, mm-hmm. a destination in and to itself for me right. at that time. Okay. So music was, okay, so music was yeah. just one of the many things. one so, of the many things. Um, well, at what point does music take over, then? Like, Well, so at that time, I'm still, like, a theater nerd in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was acting in plays, and I was writing plays, and I applied for college to go to, uh, as a playwright. I wanted to be a playwright. Uh, and so I went to UCLA, uh, as a playwright, a playwriting student. This whole time I'm like making music on my computer for fun. And I spend a year at UCLA and they're like into they, they, they have like a freshman like boot camp in the theater school that's like everybody does the same thing and everybody takes the same classes and so you don't really get to specialize mm-hmm. with the full intention that I'm going to just like write plays from then on out and uh, then I discover theater sound design and I just never look back like I'm already making music on my computer I already know a lot about how sound works on a computer at that time it's still really like, I'm obsessed with music, right? And I'm, like, constantly mm-hmm. consuming and listening to music. And this is when I meet Bill. Bill and I are freshmen at UCLA together. And we, like, okay. you know, go to the Tower Records every week and, you know, talk about music all the time. Because we're, the, we're, like, there's, like, one other, a couple other people in our class who are interested in experimental music. And so we all kind of, like, feed off each other. And, um, and it's very exciting for me to, like, have left Riverside and to find people with, like exciting taste and I'm just kind of like blown Would away. Would you even heard of the stuff that you were listening yeah. to? I mean I remember how I met Bill is that a group of freshmen were walking back from the like theater area to the dorms and I'm just like hearing a sort of like I'm in the middle of a conversation I'm hearing voices and I hear from behind me blah 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 who directed all those square pusher videos <laughs> and I turn around <laughs> and I'm like wait are you talking about Chris Cunningham and then it was just like ah oh, fuck everyone else was like ah oh, we fucked ourselves out of that conversation <laughs> and it was just like all downhill from there um <laughs> um, um yeah and I was excited because I was like, I really felt like, and maybe this is not entirely fair to my high school friends. And and I I definitely had friends who were like interested in kind of outsider art and outsider music. But I always felt like I was doing the majority of my own research. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. have the like older sibling character. I had like a friend of mine's older sister's like husband they might have been married at the time was like a doctoral student at cornell in like german literature but he also had this like ravenous interest in experimental music and he turned me on to like a lot of stuff like i had that sort of figure but we would i would see him like once a year you know and then it would just be like be like okay you're here for a day and uh, I'm going to borrow all of these CDs and stay up all night ripping them <laughs> like, or, like, or like burning uh-huh. them, you know, trying to uh-huh. um, so that I can 
hear more of this stuff. Because uh, also, mm-hmm. like, the record store, it wasn't, wasn't like there was an option for me to get those albums in Riverside. Right. Like, um, you know, the warehouse and Sam Goody were pretty pathetic. There was a record yeah. store called Mad Platter um, that's still there. I mean, maybe not anymore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was still there last I checked that was quite good. Um, it was better, mm-hmm. I think, than I even recognized, you know, like later yeah. when I would go back, I'd be like, holy shit, have you always been this good? It was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, boy, I'm on such a tangent. I don't even remember. Well, so you, 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 you go for um, being a playwright and yeah. then it becomes about theater, sound design, and you meet Bill. Yeah. And I just, and I tried to get into a playwriting class like as a sophomore and there wasn't room for the underclassmen in it. So I was like, well, next year. And then by the time we get to my junior year, I was already, like, a year later from then, I was already, like, sound designing professionally outside of UCLA. Because I did my first, so I did my, oh, wow. my sophomore year, I took all of the available, like, sound and media classes. Uh, and one of those was a Max MSP um, mm-hmm. course designed to, for theater sound design. Because at the time, there, everyone was using CDs or mini discs or instant replays which I think people mm-hmm. still use in like live television sometimes, but it's basically like an overpriced sampler. It's like a, mm-hmm. an MPC. It looks like an MPC, but all it does is play one sound when you hit one button and that's all it does. Oh wow. And it's like $10,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're like stupid expensive. They've, for they've what been they had. Yeah. Yeah. I, I even thought at the time I was like, mm, you guys know there are samplers, right? Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, and so this guy was teaching Max as like a tool to do theater sound design where you could design an interface by which like a non-skilled operator could just hit one button and a ton of things could happen, which was really mm-hmm. hard. At the th- like it was hard to run sound for a show at the time because you were like, okay, well this next cue is going to be track four on this CD and track six on this CD and I need yeah. to fade them like this and I need to remember that this is the level and like do all this stuff because there wasn't like recallability in that way yet. Uh, so I got into Max. And I was still making music in my dorm room on my computer. Then I did a, a my first theater sh- like play in Max, which was like an undergraduate like. There's a graduate student writer, undergraduate director like one act that I did in Max with like, I mean I didn't even know that it was exciting or innovative at the time. It was just like the tool that I knew. But I was doing like mm-hmm. VBAP panning and like all this sort of crazy stuff that I just didn't know you couldn't do and I'm sure if I looked at that patch now I would be horrified I do remember that the operator <laughs> had to click on a different button for every cue like so I had not oh, figured wow. out like the idea of like cue lists or anything yet anyway a director saw that who was like wait I need a sound designer for my show at this tiny little theater he had on Pico Boulevard so I did that that summer and then I did another show and then it was just like and then it was like I was doing every like 99 seat theater in LA for like a couple of years while I was still an undergrad. Wow. Cause I, cause nobody had ever seen anybody do it on a computer before, I think. And like people would come and see mm-hmm. these shows and be like, there's so much sound. Like, where is it all coming from? How is this working? And then it's just like one stage manager hitting a button, you know? So mm-hmm. I think it was like, I just hit this perfect storm. Not that that led to anything great, right? Like the 99 seat theater grind of sound designer in LA is awful and doesn't, like did not catapult me into like a successful theater sound design career at all. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of, that's when like sound really took over. I was like, Oh, I think I'm, I think this is what I do. Um, 
Okay. And that director who saw the, the who saw that initial play and gave me my first professional gig was this guy named Matt Shackman, who now he's directed he directed like half the episodes of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and okay. he directed a bunch of Game of Thrones episodes, and he's now the artistic director at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. Where, oh, wow. I, where I work a bunch. And so it's like, that was a great connection so, that early. It was like, you know. Yeah. I mean, lucky. So you've, do, uh, you've done some film film composing too, right? Yeah, yeah. And is it through him? Was that kind of like the connection that set that up? Or? No, we've never, we've done a little bit. I've done like a little bit of work on pilots for him. He'll, he'll call mm-hmm. me when he's in a bind on a pilot. And I demoed for his, he, he did make a feature film that I demoed for, but... Uh, they hired James Newton Howard instead, and I can't blame anybody for that. It's like, <laughs> like, like yeah, I hired James Newton Howard. I didn't know he was on the table. What am I doing here? You know, um, he's one of my favorites. He's so good. Anyway, uh, and um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, at the same time, you know, I was in theater school. I was taking media classes. I was meeting film students, and I started scoring short films. Uh, my first film was a like a forty minute documentary about a French um, porn actress like later in life okay. um, mm-hmm. called La Petite Mort. Uh, there's a lot of French related things in this interview coming mm-hmm. up. Um, <laughs> um, this graduate director um, named Emmanuel Schick made who's French and um, and she was just like we were just in a class together and she's like wait don't you have a band? And I was like oh I you know, make music on my computer. I had a project called Captain Ahab uh, at the time that I was mm-hmm. just kind of starting and I maybe by that point had put out a record I like yeah like the summer between like some summer in there I well the thing the thing that happened was I heard DMX crew for the first time mm-hmm. um which I got I got the DMX crew record cuz it was on Reflex Records and I was like oh this is Aphex Twins label I'm curious what he's putting out and I heard this DMX crew record and I was just like my jaw was on the floor I was like this is stupid club music with like funny words. Uh-huh. Like I, you're not allowed to do that. You have to be serious. Like I was trying to sound like Aphex Twin and Autiker at that point, you know. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, you can't do that. You can't just make like dumb '80s songs about butts and things, can you? <laughs> can you? <laughs> and uh, boy, can you! Uh, it turns out. Um, so, <laughs> so I was like, well, I was like, I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna take what I've learned about like cutting up breakbeats and doing like you know like intelligent club music which is such a stupid label and mm. and I'm going to make dumb 80s pop songs with like cut up breakbeats in them and so I made like four of those songs and sent them out as demos and that got me a record I had sent out I'd been sending out like CDR demos for a while before that but that one actually the person who responded was Miguel De Pedro who's a really good friend now kid, six, kid 606 um, who's someone you should talk to if you haven't. He's way, way into the modular game okay. these days. I'm gonna write He's rad. Um, uh, yeah, and so he responded. He was like, hey, I'm, this, is like, this is a great demo. He's like, I'd love to do something, but you should also send it to this British label, Irritant, because he's going to flip. And so I sent, it, I sent them a demo, and, and I put out a 12-inch, and, and as I scored this movie... And I was starting to play shows as Captain Ahab. And then I scored like a couple other short films. And at around this time, I'm like 
I've put out maybe two or three Captain Ahab records by the time we get to like maybe mm-hmm. 2005 ish. Mm-hmm. 2005, 2006, I like finally get a theater gig that makes like a slight amount of money. Like, I mean, I'm not, ta- I'm like, 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 I finally got one that paid like, that meant I had like $500 to spend on something. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what is this modular synthesizer thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the time, you know, this is 2005 or something. There it's were not a lot stuff, of, or? yeah, there were not a lot of players in town. And the dope for, Modules were cheaper, but mm-hmm. they I didn't they were small and it wasn't like Eurorack was a format, it was like Dopefer was a format. You right. Know, at right. that time. It was like Dopefer Blasset and dot com slash MOTM, which were like slightly different formats, but they were sort of compatible. Mm-hmm. And I was like I just didn't really like the look of the smaller stuff, and it was actually mm-hmm. cheaper to get into dot com than Dope for a year wreck, which seems insane now. Yeah. Partially because they had a monthly payment plan prop. Right. Which they right. might still. Um, but it was great. Module it was of like, the month. Yeah, stuff. it was like you, you give them $100 a month, and after the first like three months of deposit or something, then they start sending you things. It's like you get a case, and then you get a power supply, and then you get a oscillator or something. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. done in sort of an order that you can actually do something like a little bit at first. And so I did that, um, and my, like, electronics started getting a little weirder. The deal I sort of made when I started doing Captain Ahab stuff was, like, I'm going to learn to write a pop song. I'm going to just, like, write dumb songs. And then when I feel like I can write a song, then I'm going to make weird sounds in them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I guess I always kind of did both. But then an old childhood friend of mine... um, uh, Bear McCreary, who was at the time, oh. he was just out of... Did he do Battlestar Galactica? Yeah, so he was just out of USC, and he got Battlestar, and so he was like, he's a little bit older than me, and so he was like doing... He was starting to do Battlestar, and then starting to branch out into movies, and he started hearing like the Captain Ahab stuff I was doing, we were always in touch, and he's like, hey, do you want to do electronics on a film score with me? And I said, sure, of course. And so we did Wrong Turn 2, the directed video sequel to Wrong Turn, uh-huh. directed by Joe Lynch. Uh, and okay. he would just, like, send me MIDI files and, like, a rough audio demo and be like, here's, like, a dumb drum pattern. Make a better one. You know, make a cool loop or make, like, a cool... Here's a melody. Play it on a cool synth sound. And, and so we did that movie together. And at the then, like right after that, um, some a UCLA person was making a feature, and she had no money, but needed only like fifteen or twenty minutes of music. So I did that, and that was my first feature. And then that got into Sundance. Then was Bear, that Starry Eyes? No, no, that was years later. This was a movie called. Okay. Oh, this is embarrassing. What was it called? <laughs> Reversion. That's what it's called. Reversion. Um, which uh, I don't think went anywhere. I, m- I remember she recut it, and I wrote some new music for it a couple of years after that, but I don't think it ever got picked up. Um, but anyway, so I'd done a feature. Then Bear got the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the TV show, so he asked mm-hmm. me to work mm-hmm. on that. And then that was like that was like really where I learned the grind of like, oh, you have to, I have to make like, you know, I have to. And I wasn't writing on Sarah Connor. I was just like doing like sound design and electronics and stuff on existing cues, but it was still like 
20, 30 minutes of cues a week, you know, that I would have mm -hmm. like a couple of days to turn around and stuff. Um, and so that's when I kind of learned the grind. Another friend of you mine. You say 20, 30 minutes of cues? Yeah. That's, it, that's a lot of, that's, that's yeah. a lot of individual pieces of music because those are really short, right? Yeah, they're really short. And, and it, you know, it got easier as you sort of, like definitely on Wrong Turn 2, I was still in this, I was approaching each cue as a totally separate piece of music, right? And not thinking mm -hmm. about the whole, and it was so daunting and it was hard, you know? And I, and I've, I remember sending a, sending a cue to Bear and being like, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know, I used the same loop as I used in this other cue because it sounded good and I didn't have any other ideas. And he's like, yeah, like film composers, we never repeat ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. The cue is not the, the piece. The whole score is the piece. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, which is actually, yeah. Uh, so I was doing a TV show. I had done that Sundance movie. And I think those were enough credits then to get a friend of mine who was an assistant editor at this, um, like, TV movie um, production house who just like needed composers. I think that was enough of a, it was like, oh, he can actually turn something in and here's a bunch of music that proves he can actually make music. And, mm -hmm. and we don't give a fuck what these things sound like. So sure, we'll hire, <laughs> we'll hire your friend. And they hired me to do like four movies in a row. And that was like my, those didn't get me any other gigs. Like nobody saw them and they're bad and the music is bad but it taught me how to like just turn a crank and come out with music at the other side. Mm -hmm. Like I was writing 90 minutes of music in three weeks for those things, you know? And okay. And this is all Captain Ahab is like your personal stuff while you're doing this. Yeah, exactly. So I'm also making, trying to make Captain Ahab records while all this is happening. Um, by the time all like the, the film scoring stuff is really happening, it, it's getting harder and harder to make Captain Ahab records. Cause it's just harder to find time. And like the last yeah. thing you want to do after you've been, you know, writing music for 12 hours is like, write more fucking music sometimes you know definitely yeah, um, yeah no, i get it <laughs> um so i kind of did a bunch of that stuff i did one i did a captain ahab record that was not intended to be the last one but felt very ultimate and i didn't know where i was going after that one um and at the same time bill bill and i are of course friends this whole time and roommates most of the time um okay. and he's doing he's doing like his own noise music stuff um and he started doing a project with our friend kyle mabson who's still still around doing stuff uh he's a good friend um called beach balls that was their quote-unquote like party noise project party noise yeah. i want to hear that <laughs> it was very good there are still some beach balls records floating around um the records i think are mostly bill on his own but the mm -hmm. shows were like Kyle would have like a drum machine and play like a like a dance beat and Bill would have a noise set up and they would just like hard cut between them like every 10 seconds oh, wow. at first. And then on the records, Bill started doing stuff with like rap acapellas and he made this one track called Case Sensitivity um, that was the Yin Yang Twins weight uh, acapella, the, the whisper song, the Whaley See My Dick track uh -huh. over just like a piercing high frequency like click and that's all it was and it uh -huh. was 
for whatever reason, my iTunes set on random love that one at the time, and I just heard it over and over again, and it was so fucking scary. And it like took that like party song, which it's always like vaguely threatening, like whispering, mm-hmm. "Will you see my dick to someone?" is vaguely threatening. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I guess not vaguely. It's. Like pretty, I was gonna say maybe not vaguely. It's pretty threatening <laughs> seeming, um, and uh, and it was so like scary and threatening and cool. And I was like, "Hey, you guys need to just this needs to be what beach balls sounds like. You guys need to do that. Just like take." rap acapellas and put in like put noise underneath them but that's like really tailored to the acapella and they were like we're not doing that project anymore and i was like okay bill you and i should start a band where we do that Uh let's just Uh take that i that one idea and like make it a whole project and so we started doing that we started making remixes of existing rap songs uh, that i think are all still on on the clipping soundcloud we called ourselves Clipping, and we played, like, three or four shows where we were just playing these mashups that we made and, like, doing some processing on them live. And then David moved to L.A., um, who I'd always sort of peripherally known because he was good friends with Bill. Mm-hmm. Did I just... No, okay, cool. I thought I had, I had like, hit my keyboard and thought I had stopped the recording. But, um, <laughs> um, and he was hearing the stuff we were doing, and he was like, you know, these should be original songs. And we're like, well, let's try to make one. And so we made the song Loud on Mid-City, and we did one show that was like me and Bill playing all of our remixes. And then David came on at the end and did that song loud. And we were like, okay, we're never playing those remixes ever again. We're just going to make right. enough original songs to have a show. And we played like maybe two shows or something like that. And then finished the Mid-City record. That's okay. Yeah. Because that, going into this in preparation, I've kind of kind of just kind of go, go full circle when i find something like i was describing yeah. what i found with you guys and with like mount erie it becomes kind of all i listen to yeah and yeah, i yeah. will like go through the entire catalog and steep myself in it and to a point where my wife's like oh she, it was actually really funny she goes i put i because I, I got the 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 record of the deep and she was like oh is this the clippings nice <laughs> <It's> yeah like, <laughs> I love it when um, people call us that. That's very funny. We always joke that we yeah, should get like... Yeah, I was like, like I'm going uh, to tell Jonathan you called them the clippings. It happens, um, it happens all the time. We, we've always joked that we should get like matching suits and like call ourselves like Davy Clipping, Johnny Clipping, and <laughs> Billy Clipping. We're like, we were the clippings. <laughs> Little straw hats, you know. <laughs> oh. oh, man, that'd be amazing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening to this stuff and I'm thinking like, because I, 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 I guess the lore that I had kind of picked up, I don't like to do too much research, but I had mm-hmm. heard somebody say that um, before we, you just told me all that, somebody had told me that, oh, they started with like joke rap songs with noise music and then they became a real rap, you know, real rap group. And I was thinking to myself, if that's true, like one, how did they find somebody to rap over that? And then two, how did they find somebody as skilled as David? to be like yeah i'll do that so that it's just like such a it's such a a mix that you wouldn't think you'd never think of it but it just god it works man well i mean it was like definitely it was like i mean it kind of started in the way that i was talking about like noise or experimental or process music like starting from the point starting from a process point not an aesthetic point like, we mm-hmm. definitely started this with, like, 
Okay, here's the idea. No drums, no melodies. We're gonna make rap songs, like things that are in like undeniably rap songs. It's not just rapping over randomness. There is structure, there is rhythm. Right. The the two elements know that each other exist, right? Like it's not I used to do DJ sets where I would mm -hmm. play rap acapellas over Mersbo records. Where I would like have okay. I would have like three turntables or like two turntables and a CD player and I would just play rap rap acapellas and then like mix between like harsh noise records. Um I also used to do DJ <laughs> sets where I would mix uh hip hop instrumentals like and actually beat match them and just play stand up comedy records <laughs> over the top of them <laughs> to replace the vocal. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> I remember, like somebody coming. It was like, "Are you just playing Jeff Foxworthy over rap, rap instrumentals?" And I was like, "Yes, I am, sir." <laughs> Jeff Foxworthy, like the worst comedy too, like the dumbest worst comedy, and like the best, yeah. the best beats was like my oh, sort of like awesome. thing. It was not. <laughs> Again, one of those ideas that it's like, oh, on paper, that's as good as hearing it. Or in fact, maybe it's just better left on paper. Right, um, right. <laughs> and clipping was kind of one of those ideas too, right? That it was like, well, this is a thing that we think could exist. So let's try it. And I remember the first handful of songs we made, like we didn't know if they were good. We were like, here's our list of criteria. Here's our like checklist mm -hmm. of the things that we think would be an interesting song and let's just do all of those one at a time and then at the end of it I, we would listen to things and be like I, I guess it's done I don't know right <laughs> I don't know that I like it but I think it's like done it feels like unlike something I've heard before and it feels like we accomplished our goals mm -hmm. um and I mean clipping and it was like it was definitely like a weird uh, weird like side project that we were all doing um I was kind of doing fewer and fewer Captain Ahab shows and getting like less into that, and and um, this felt like a fun thing, but it was definitely not like my main, any of our main things at all. So it wasn't started with the intent of becoming what it is now. No, it was like we were going to make Mid City and probably, you know, like mm -hmm. if if people hadn't responded to Mid City in the same way, I don't know. I mean, like, and and it's also interestingly enough, clipping is the one like project that we all have this memory of it that none of our friends understood or liked. That like usually you play whatever music you're working on for your friends. They're like, oh, what are you up to? And you're like, oh, I'm making this thing. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, what's that for? Like, you know. And we would play them clipping songs, and people would be like, hmm, well, that's interesting. I don't know who that's for but it's interesting. And we'd be like, yeah, we don't really know who it's for either, but we think there's something there. And like mm -hmm. the only people we, we always said <laughs> there were two people who liked clipping, uh, which were Stephen Cano, who records as tick tick, uh, as a noise artist who I, I toured with, I think bill probably toured with too. Lovely, mm -hmm. lovely person who we don't see enough. Uh, who was like, this is, you guys got to keep doing this. This is amazing. And Brian Miller, who runs Death Bomb Arc, um, was like, I, I don't know that clipping would have existed without him. We would have made the first stuff, but then he, like, he was just, like, insistent to the point of being annoying that we keep doing things, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and has always been our, like, biggest, like, supporter. He did all of the PR for Mid-City for free, even though he didn't put it out. Okay. Just because he liked it. And he was, like, 
he was like, this could be something. This could be a thing. Like, I want to send it around. I want to like, do a whole PR campaign for it. And we're like, we can't pay you. And he's like, that's okay. So, wow. You know, so is that yeah. how Sub Pop got wind of you? Yeah. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the, like, order of these events, but... Um, mm-hmm. Garrett, who works in IT at Sub Pop, was in a band called Wamu, I believe. Mm-hmm. And when Clipping was setting up our first tour, which was with Foot Village, which was Brian Miller's old band, uh, Brian had reached out to Garrett and was like, "We're." I don't. I don't know if this is how it happened first. But I think. I think it is. He was like, "I'm trying to set up a show. We're touring with this new band, Clipping," and he sent the record. And Garrett was like. I think the A&R people at Sub Pop should hear this. And so he played it for Tony Keywill, who's our A&R person at Sub Pop, who mm-hmm. heard it and then wrote to me and was like... Um, I remember we had a Skype meeting. I was in Argentina doing a theater thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had a... We were asked to play a show while I was going to be in Argentina. And it, was, it happened to be when Tony from Sub Pop was going to be in L.A., <clears throat> um, and we were going to say no because I was going to be gone, and I was like, guys, you gotta, you gotta, we got to figure out how to, you can play this show without me because the, uh-huh. the dude from the label is going to be there, and right. I don't know what that means, but, you know. And and so I recorded my part, and they played it back on like an iPod oh, really? or a phone or something, <laughs> and I wasn't there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think probably... David has missed more clipping shows than I have because there were a handful without him before he was in the band. Yeah. Um, but uh, but there was a clipping show without me. Um, that that's what got us signed to Sub Pop. So yeah, they that's were all crazy. They were all real bummed when they found out there's a third person in this band. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Tony and I like talked over Skype, and then he went to that show, which was apparent. I don't remember who it was with. Now it was it was also like with somebody kind of exciting that we were like, oh shit, we should. We should do this yeah. show. Um, and uh, kids went nuts at it, apparently. Like, it was like a crazy mosh pit. It was at The Smell in L.A., and it was yeah. like a, just a crazy mosh pit of kids, and Tony was, like, pressed up against the side, like, getting hit by kids and stuff. So it was a good... I think it was a good, <laughs> yeah, a that's, good thing for him. Well, yeah. that doesn't surprise me. Like, cause I feel like it's weird. I listen to... Uh, it's, 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 it's rap or it's hip-hop, and it's it's experimental and it's noise music, but like if I had to like, for some reason it feels like punk rock to me. Mm. Like I want to say it just it has it has that spirit to it for some reason. Um, I don't know. I just it's, I just yeah. I mean it's definitely very political in the way that all music has a politics. Uh, you know mm-hmm. we 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 don't wear our heart on our sleeve like too often, um, though more and more lately because it's harder not to. Um, right. Uh, but, um, but I think the, just the politics of the musical choices that we're making and like David's choice to not ever rap in the first person. Um, Mm -hmm. I think those, those feel like, those feel, you know, political in the way that like good punk rock can feel political. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, punk was, punk was never a, punk was never a a musical term right like it's it it describes an ethos and a politics right more than it right. describes a my favorite it's not my favorite. i think that's what i mean yeah yeah i was not i was about to say that my favorite punk rock record which is it's not at all but this is such a like a <laughs> trolley thing to say that is my favorite punk, punk rock record 
is that <laughs> is that Chumbawamba album where they just <laughs> called early early English rebel songs where they just a cappella sing like workers like workers strike songs from like the 17th century. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. I got because they were that like because they were like sick of. I mean, Chumbawamba is like actually one of my favorite bands. Like not musically, mm-hmm. but just like their story. They they are fucking fascinating and they are really interesting. And that they made that one like weird one hit wonder you know, record in yeah. the 90s is also insane and amazing. But they're this weird, like, anarchist collective. There's like 40 people in that band, and they all, like, <laughs> it's really, they're really odd. And they made, <laughs> they were so angry in the 80s of being, like, called not punk rock by all these, like, punks, because they were like, punk is not about just having distorted guitars and shouted vocals and two-minute songs. They're like, mm-hmm. it's actually, like, a political movement, and we're using music, but it's not... Like punk does not describe the sounds you use in the music, and so they right. made this early early English rebel songs to be like, "There's been punk music for centuries." <laughs> fuck you, fuck you guys. I love <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's the record is bad. It's hard to listen to, but because uh, they are they are not good singers. But it's also like a fascinating little historical document. It's cool. I love um, that. Yeah, I yeah. Love, yeah. Um, so we're we're at a, an hour and twenty. I I I feel like I could keep going, but I don't want to take up too much of your day. So if you got to get running, Dude, um, what is time but anymore? If, um, uh, I know, right? I just I also have I have no visible clocks in this room, kind of intentionally. So I <laughs> I also could keep going forever. So you tell me. Um, I well, do have. Can I, I just have, ask a few yeah, more things yeah. since we have like? Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of. Yeah, I have more questions about clipping, but yeah, I also sure. I also understand like you don't have to. You don't have to pull pull back the, the the curtain too much or do any uh, show how the sausage is made too much. So stop me when I'm. Oh, I don't care about say. that shit. Like if we're just a collection of studio tricks and like and ideas, then what the fuck are we? Like like, I, we're we're very transparent and we're like I I'm, I'm I don't believe in like guarding secrets or any of that crap. Okay, like, that's stupid. Anyway, awesome. <laughs> well, so th- I have I had um, a ha- hypothesis or a, a th- mm-hmm. um, kind of I was like I wonder if they do this. And so I just wanted to see if this is how. So I'm listening to, especially the the earlier stuff with no beats. Like, did you guys maybe make something that had a beat and then fill it in around it with awesome noise and then just take the beat out at the end? We, that's how we thought we would have to do it. And we tried uh-huh. and we tried and we always failed at doing that. Really? Yeah. Okay. It always sucked when we did that. And we would, occasionally we would make a thing and then add drums to it because we were like well clearly david is going to need drums in this to Uh to be able to rap on it and he always had us take the drums out and the interesting thing is too like when we first when we did our first record with sub pop and we were like we can have features we can ask like gangsta boo and king t Mm -hmm. and like people Mm -hmm. like real rappers to come like we were like terrified that we would play these beats for real rappers and they'd be like what is this shit I can't. Yeah. I can't flow over this at all. You know, I can't hear it. I can't. And so we would make versions with drums in them, to be like, "Oh shit, sorry, the bounce was fucked up. Here's the real, here's the real version." Never once were we ever asked for that. People like, you know, like they don't. They didn't ask for clicks. If we, if I, like, I recorded Gangsta Boo and I recorded King T. Um, Juice recorded himself, and is that it? Who's on that record? I think so. Oh fuck, I don't remember. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I. I we but oh and Cockpistol Cree I recorded her too uh, I recorded her here um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, every time 
I like had a muted track of drums that I was just like waiting to be like, I'll turn it on when they ask, you know, uh-huh. and, uh, and nobody ever asked or was like, this beats weird or anything. Like they were just like, yep, it's cool. I can hang with this. And it's like, wow, that's we were, awesome. We were just like, right, right. Cause we're making rap music. Like mm-hmm. if you're coming from rap music, these sound like rap songs. Cause we actually mm-hmm. did that part of it. It's like, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've, I've, as I listen, I've never once like stopped and thought like, "Wow, it's so weird." Like it, it, it's always felt like rap music to me. Yeah, and and to be honest, I feel like this. It's I feel like this is something that I've like. I mean, you guys have existed longer than I've known about you, but I feel like this is something that I I I, I, I thirst thirsted for in the past. I'm like, why doesn't anything exist that's maybe a little bit more like this in, in rap? Then I just hadn't heard of you yet. You know, I mean, there's um, I mean, that's the thing that was like, uh, you know, we we don't we certainly don't view what we're doing as being like any like anything radical or any any like rejection of uh existing rap music i mean we love we love rap music and i think that 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 what we're doing and the spirit of what we're doing has like always existed in rap music like i you know like fucking bomb squad production is sounds like negative land you know like Mm -hmm. they just they sound the same to me um Mm -hmm. and uh and a lot of like a lot of early rap records like you know you listen to like early rap from the 80s and industrial music from the 80s and they're, <laughs> they're very similar you know yeah like yeah, i think totally. that they're rooted in very like you know a similar kind of zeitgeist like things were just happening you know and but you're right that i i mean like i always wanted that too like i wanted the i wanted that kind of mindset to have like to to have to to be taken into like my taste in like noise and music concrete and synthesizer music and things in a way that I didn't mm-hmm. just feel like it. I had heard, and it's funny because now I've like heard people will be like, "Wait, have you heard this this thing?" and like play me this old record that just sounds like us, you know, that uh-huh. I that yeah. I'd never heard. Like I'd never heard that there's a Nine Inch Nails remix of a Biggie song um, that just sounds oh, really? like that sounds like clipping, yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, that I had never heard, and um, uh, a handful of other things. Oh God, what's that? Oh, I'm just blanking on it. There's a there's an industrial group with a bunch of rapping in it that I heard for the first time, like incredibly recently, just because like it's like late '80s, early '90s. God, God damn it! Um, I just. I, yeah, I, I was thinking whatever. about that. I was like, "There's probably something. There's probably is stuff that that sounds similar to this, but I feel like not. I don't know. Maybe not at the the level. I don't know. I feel like you guys you guys struck you like you hit a vein of something. You you you. Well, you lined up on some stuff. I mean, what's funny too is the only thing we really did was like everyone always says like, "Oh, just be true to yourself and your you know like your real art will come out." And we tried to make something that was like utterly impersonal, also but that mm-hmm. leaned into very heavily like what our individual like areas of expertise were mm-hmm. um which also felt like because it was a side project and we didn't feel like we needed to make something that was in any way commercial mm-hmm. um we really used you know bill and my like training as sound designers and our knowledge of experimental music and david's like sort of um, like inhuman, you know, 
sort of <laughs> rapping abilities. And like, like we really, like we really, we leaned into things that I don't think we would have thought were assets in trying to make like a rap record, just because it felt mm-hmm. like a side project. And also, like, you know, like also what we're doing is kind of like it's kind of like a conceptual sampling. Like we don't use a lot of we don't use sampling very much, but we're 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 mining so much from things we know. It's like oh, this this sound in this you know Luke Ferrari piece or something like it's kind of like I think the way he made it was like this maybe let's like riff on that technique and see if we can come up with something or like maybe let's like you know thinking about like pendulum music by Steve Reich and like swinging microphones over over speakers to create like feedback let's do that what if you cut that up and like just put it on a grid Mm -hmm. maybe that's Mm -hmm. a beat or like you know like things like that like um, we're doing a lot of this like like dialogue with the past um, uh, and trying to like find like sort of points of synchronicity between our taste in rap music and our taste in uh, Mm -hmm. experimental music. So Um, so when you're taking this approach to making beats, like another question I had, and this is a perfect segue into that is how much of a process is David in that? And how much are you guys involved in like lyrical content? um, It varies from song to song usually are bill and my like contributions to lyrics are well like bill will sometimes more than i i do will throw will make david throw out whole songs oh, <laughs> he'll, <laughs> he'll write he, a couple of times on I, I can think of David have, has written like whole passes of a song and Bill's like, eh, what if it, what if it's from this angle instead? And he's like, ah, fuck. And he that goes back and he, <laughs> re- <laughs> he rewrites it entirely. Um, usually if I have lyric notes, it's, there are too many words in this hook. <laughs> it's just what I've, what I've said over and over and over again. It's like any hook practically in a clipping song that you hear that's just like one word it's because i took out all of the other ones and was like what if you just say this over and over again uh, well at least, the reason i at least asked at the that is it feels like a band yeah it feels like you're all involved in all of it but it also after hearing your 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 background and everything we've talked about so far and I watched, um, I watched like a video of you, of you and Bill talking about your stage setups. I kind of, I feel like some puzzle pieces are falling together. Like it is very sound designy. It also has some real noise elements. And I feel like you're, you're bringing like a lot of the sound design. Bill brings a lot of the noise, but then you both are noise and sound designers. But, and, and then, yeah, it's a perfect storm. Like definitely this band couldn't exist in, in the same way with like the three of us are like, we are like a triple threat across three people or each a single threat <laughs> um, um, uh, no uh, Bill describes the band and I, I say this a lot in interviews I guess but um, he, he's like if Clipping was a movie David is the screenwriter and the star Bill is the director and wrote the story and I am the the producer and the editor. Okay. So it's okay. like, and I, li- and I like to kind of extrapolate that further in a way that I, and I, and I say like, like David is the reason that clipping is like virtuosic and feels impressive and feels mm-hmm. like 
impressive in the way that like performances happening in real time can be impressive because neither Bill or I are capable of doing that kind of like mm-hmm. virtuosic performance. Um, Bill is the reason that it's like focused and specific and tasteful and that it's like and that it's like sort of narrow and minimal and then I'm the reason that any of it happens at all. Um, <laughs> like, um, yeah, yeah. That like, and Bill was like, "Well, that's not fair." And I was like, "Is it though?" Because like, you and I have made music together a, a lot over the years. David and I have made music. So like, Bill and I make music together, and it's very like cold and clinical. Like the beats that we've made when we're like, "Hey, let's make a real beat that we can sell to other people." That's not a clipping song. We end up making just like the coldest, frostiest, most minimal, like lasery kind of like thing that just sounds like clipping anyway when david uh-huh. and i make music together it like instantly spirals into like ridiculousness like we're very bad at like yes anding each other like every mm-hmm. every idea is like worth exploring and fun and exciting and like bill has to be the one in the room who's been like hey, let's like tone down that like vocal <laughs> exuberance in that take or like something uh-huh. or, like da- but david and i'll just like go like we're you know uh, and then and then as far as i'm aware Bill and David have never made any music together on their own. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it is kind of fair to like to like kind of so compartmentalize the denominator there. <laughs> yeah, right. Like um, that they're they're both obviously brilliant and very good at like kind of um, sort of coming up with great ideas. But but I think that I I think I bring a rigor from film scoring that that maybe is necessary to actually like finish things. Um, oh, I had something else I was going to say in there. I don't know. I talked too much too. Sorry. Um, no, this is, I mean, it's a great, it's a great, uh, great for a podcast host. The less talking I have to do, the that's better. That's true, I suppose, um, yeah. But I mean, we're going a little long and, and I'll just, one more, one more quick yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how quick it'll be. It doesn't need to be quick. You know, but um, I can't imagine who's going to listen to all of this, but you know. Uh, dude, we'll, see. There, well, so I, I learned about you from my friend Daniel Miller, who's a, he's a great he's a infidel tech. He's a great um, modular synthesis. And um, Walker Farrell from Make Noise. I've, I've oh. seen both of them post about you guys enough <laughs> times where I'm like, I trust both of them. Oh, so cool. there's definitely some, some pretty hardcore clipping fans well, in the modular world. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, we definitely use a lot, of, a lot of modular stuff in our... It really is. I, like, I mean, like, And definitely like Mid-City is like... Half modular, half field recordings. Like, oh really? There's okay. not, there's not really anything else in that really in that record. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that's that's what I was gonna say. Like, because clipping stones, because you asked really about like how collaborative like David was on the beat versus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, they all happen in sort of different ways. There have been a handful of songs that like David has just written over a click, and we've made the beat around his voice. Oh wow! Sort of, okay. in, sort of in the old style. That's my preferred way of working, and we've made maybe two songs that way total. So we don't do that very much, but I like working that way because it's. Uh-huh. Um, if I feel like we make like more off kilter choices when his when we know that there's a, a clock, which is his voice, then the beat doesn't have to also be a clock, you know, mm-hmm. which is I think cool. Um, if it's a Bill idea, he usually, although now in quarantine, he's like actually doing stuff on his own computer and sending me like sketches. Mm-hmm. But if usually if it's a Bill idea, it's like, hey, what if we made this kind of a rap song with this kind of a 
music concrete or experimental music sound, right? He's like, let's make like a 2001 cash money thing, but with this twist on it or something, right? It's like very mm -hmm. historically informed and he, come, he comes in with an idea. If it's a me, if I'm starting, then it's usually like, I made this cool field recording or I have this module that does this and it's weird. Or like actually like more clipping songs than you'd think even are like, I made this cue for a movie and it got rejected because it was too weird or just too harsh. <laughs> and this one stem in it, I think could be a whole song or like, uh -huh. or like, you know, I, I sometimes work for other composers doing electronics um, and like, like, like sort of cleaning up their scores. Like, you know, like our song body and blood has a sound in it that I made for the Disney show Tron uh, legacy like the was it like whatever, uh -huh. whatever the show was called Tron Uprising that's what it was called uh -huh. uh, for that composer that didn't get used that I just like I don't think I even sent it to him I like made a better version of it for that <laughs> show but I was like this one's weird let's use that in this song um, yeah the song Block is one of those too that's a that's a I know, well like that a makes that yeah. makes sense too because I feel like I mean, not to like, I, I think humans like to categorize, but yeah. I think generally as I'm listening to you, I feel like there, there are some, there are some stylistic avenues that you guys kind of cover. Not to say that every, like there's, oh, you do this one thing and this one thing, but I, I feel like there's a couple different things you do. And I feel like what you just explained, I'm like, oh, I kind of, I feel like I can pick those out and, across and, the records. And we definitely like as we're finishing a record, we'll look at what's on the record and be like, oh, we haven't one, done one of these yet. <laughs> Let's do one of those, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, or, like, there will be a technique. Because sometimes, like, we invent a technique. Or invent. You know, we, we like, come up with, a, like, a working methodology for a song, and we make the whole song. And then we're like... And then a year goes by, and we're like, you know, I think there's a lot more, like... That's fertile ground that we didn't really mind. We just made this one song. Like, uh, so our song... There's a song on... Splendid Misery called Baby Don't Sleep mm -hmm. that was a beat that I had made I can't remember if I just made it on my own or if Bill was here but it was an idea I had and the beat was called Four Sounds just Four Sounds it was the beat just like floating around in our pool of beats to, to use and it really like the, if you listen to that song the beat is just hard cutting between four sounds uh -huh. just on it's like a half note every half note you just cut between <laughs> two different sounds and then there's like a third one and then a fourth one is a fill and there's no there are no drums and there's no rhythmic indication except these hard cuts between these four continuous sounds and it's like mm -hmm. you know you look in the session and it's just this like these like these long field recordings and modular tracks that i just sliced you know um okay and i was like and i was like that's a cool technique um we should revisit that. So I made a beat called Five Sounds <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's uh, doing the same thing with like a little more rhythmic um, variation. And that became the song The Show on our most recent album, uh, There Existed an Addiction to Blood. Well, you're giving me some ideas because I just got a stereo-triggered sampler from um, 4MS. And I, I, don't, I haven't really ever worked with samples too much. And now I'm just taking my previous modular recordings and putting them on there and finding ways to like cut them up and re repurpose I'm, that stuff. I'm continually frustrated that there doesn't seem to exist a sampler in the world that just like what I, I kind of want a sampler to work the way that like uh, like a file playback on a modular would work, right? That the sound is just running continuously, 
and your keyboard presses are just gating on and off like the volume to it, right? So that so that you could have like a 10-minute recording that's like vaguely an E, say, right? And you say like, mm -hmm. that's an E, and then every time you hit a key, you're at a different part in that 10-minute recording, right? So you're hearing a different part of it rather than starting it over every, every time. And I made max patches to do that, um, but that's sort of what the, the four sounds idea was. And actually, I got that idea from, from, even though I did that one in a computer, though there are modular sounds in it, like I got that from um, using, uh, using a sequential switch for audio in the modular, mm -hmm. like running mm -hmm. like four channels of audio into a sequential switch and then using like a CV or a gate to step between them. And that's mm -hmm. a technique that we've used on a bunch of clipping songs too, is like we make four interesting sounds and then, because I, I have this, I think it's a club of the knobs uh, sequential switch that allows you to switch between the, the inputs with CV as opposed to mm -hmm. stepping between them with gate, which I know there's tons of stuff in your rack that'll do that. Um, mm -hmm. But that's that's like it's like mind blowing in five U world. You, know? <laughs> um, <laughs> you could also use like an a, a LPG and just have that sample play and then have it kick on. Yeah, totally. With, you know, uh, but there's I, yeah, there's there's something like that I like about. I mean, that's exactly what it is, right? Like, I, basically, I want that tool in software so I can just like drag mm -hmm. a field recording into a thing and then be able to gate it on and off with MIDI, um, mm -hmm. in exactly the way that I want. You can kind of do that. You can do it if you keep all your notes legato in uh, the sampler called uh, Redux that I use. Anyway, it, do it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, like just so like uh, I think our song Chain, which is a, like a rarity off like a tour only 10 inch that we made like really early on, maybe before Mid City. I think so. Okay. Um, okay. No, I don't remember the chronology, but um, but that song, that song, the main, the whole beat is just like four sounds running through that sequential switch, and then using like an off, an off kilter like LFO shape to mix between mm -hmm. them that I'm re-triggering on the downbeat, right? So that it like it it is rhythmic even though it's not a beat, right? It's like repeated, right, right, right. Um, um okay, well, last question. Sure. Chapter 319. Yeah. How did you guys produce that so quickly? It was like so on time with everything that happened. We made it in a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Um, well, and actually we, it's, it came out even a little later than I was, I was hoping it would. Cause I, I mean, it was great that it could come out on Juneteenth. Actually that ended up being the right time, but I was really trying to get it out while the protests were like, you know, get a song out right mm -hmm. as the, the protests hit just because I felt like I wanted to do fucking something, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. God, it doesn't, you know, yeah. So I, I said, cause we'd made that song knees on the ground ages ago. Mm -hmm. And I was like, guys, should we just, should we do another one of these? Cause that felt like the only thing we could do at that time. Um, and I'm kind of feeling the same way. And David was like, honestly, he's like, the situation has not changed at all. And I just don't know what I would even say beyond go listen to knees on the ground again. Um, mm -hmm. He's like, I just don't think I have another one of those in me. Like I, I said it and it's there and it's all still fucking true. And all the same shit mm -hmm. is happening and it's still tragic and awful. And it's still makes me angry in the same way. And I was like, that's fair. Okay. And then a few days went by and Bill was like, hey, what if we make up? protest anthem like what if we make a party song that's designed to like that's designed to like 
be active and like progressive feeling and it's angry but mm -hmm. it's like but it's like you put it on to because you're fucking angry and you want to march you don't like mm -hmm. like knees on the ground you kind of listen to and cry <laughs> like i do yeah anyway, yeah you know and um and david was like oh yeah i got that and it was like june 16 and i was like well can we get it out for June 19? <laughs> and our mixing engineer was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it, and I'll do it for free, and I'll put, up, put some other shit off. And so we were like, okay, so we have to make it in a day. Um, Bill started that one. I was in the middle of mixing a movie when that happened, actually. And uh, so Bill started that one. He found the George Floyd sample and cut it up and put it in a logic session and sent it to me. And then I had the boneheaded idea, which I think is such a stupid, funny idea of speeding the sample up because it's from a screw tape. Because he was uh -huh. like, it's too slow to make a marching song out of. And I was like, but it's pitched way down. Let's just pitch it up so his voice sounds normal, which is like the most like, I don't know, feels like the most disrespectful thing you can do to a screw tape. But it's also like really, like no one would think to do that. It's so funny to me. Um, I don't know. Uh, so we did that to speed it up to get it to the to the right tempo and I ended up liking the way it sounded. Uh and then, you mm -hmm. know, we we barely used that sample, um, actually. And like the part of the song that's really like taken off doesn't contain the sample at all. Um mm -hmm. we kinda just made a song with that sample as like inspirational, you know, feeling. Well that's uh, those that those two songs is what pulled me in. Oh, like cool. I I had seen yeah. so I mean I'm 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 new to yeah, the world yeah, yeah, of clipping yeah. very new, um, but I I just want to say like uh, how it was just so impactful because I I I had felt like I feel like just recently I've I've been made aware of things that have been going on my whole life that I had my head in the sand about a little bit and not a little bit a lot yeah, and. Yeah. Um, I, this is the most, like, I feel like I was instantly radicalized <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and to have, and, and, and music is, is, is an important part of that. And to have, to have a, a song, the, t the two songs, one that, that was kind of getting me pumped up and like, it was saying what I was, you know, what it's, yeah. it, was, it was matching my, my feeling. And then also like the really, the dark kind of cinematic, like really hit you in the, in the sternum that that together was just like really impactful and uh and again and i don't i don't want to make it about me but i just want to say thank you it was meaningful for me to have well, like to to have that i mean know? that's good and you know and then like i mean it it's 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 sometimes like tough not in a way that like deserves pity obviously in any way but it's it's hard to be like I, I, I repeatedly I constantly feel like I'm confronted with um situations in the world that make me feel like I've wasted my life learning an irrelevant set of skills. Right? That like yeah. I'm very mm -hmm. good at making something that doesn't matter at all to anyone mm -hmm. and does not need to exist. I am not fucking curing cancer here. You know, like I mm -hmm. am making dumb songs in my in my basement by myself most of the time, you know? And, and obviously like anyone in their lives has a relationship with music that can, can be deeply meaningful and that influences you and changes you. And I like releasing that song and then watching 
people share it and watching like it the the Donald Trump is a white supremacist line that just like blew up on TikTok. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if there last I checked there were like fifty thousand TikTok videos of people just mm -hmm. doing that and like people are wrapping that line at their conservative parents and like it's I don't know I don't know what it means. Uh, and there and and music and art like doesn't always have that one to one you know relationship, but it's like oh I made this song and this song had this impact right. You don't necessarily mm -hmm. get to see that stuff, um, but it was really nice to see that to be like oh my god I we used our powers for good for a second. Yeah, um, you yeah. Know, we absolutely. we raised a lot of money in donations, um, like shockingly more than I would have thought we would have um, with that thing, and. And it was like, right, music's, music's important sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and that's kind of like me feeling that I'm wasting my life doing this stuff, which is real. And it's hard to like, not feel that way. Uh, if you're a musician, especially right now with everything that's happening, it's like, it's, it's also the lie of capitalism, right? It's like, <laughs> that, that sort of imposter syndrome and that like that worthiness like problem yeah. is like I think perpetuated by the system that we live in that that, that, that attempts to put a monetary value on everything too. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. uh, you know I mean and and I, and I guess what I just said also is that our track made a bunch of money for charities so that that feels like a way of valuing it. But it was nice to occasionally get reminded that like oh yeah every so often. There is this one-to-one -one correlation between something that felt irrelevant and something good that happens out of it. Absolutely, yeah. And in a time where you feel, where you, if you, to be able to exercise the privilege that you have over the platform for good is, I think, always a noble act. You know, so I hope so. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I definitely need to find more meaningful ways to contribute that feel. You know that 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 don't feel so kind of ephemeral. Um, mm -hmm. I'm I'm never going to argue that that music and art are not important, but um, I think personally, I'm feeling feeling the need to to have a little more to see a little more like individual impact, and I'm still figuring out exactly what that means to me. But um, yeah, but I'm always going to keep making music, so um, that also should help somebody else besides myself if it can yeah. you know um well, man we covered some ground today <laughs> yeah i do i t we all tend to talk too much in interviews and, uh, and especially no, this like... is great this might be a, a two-parter i don't know <laughs> sorry um no I, it's great for me I, and honestly like i i love having these conversations so much they 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 especially during the quarantine stuff and i I, I kind of I wake up with anxiety and depression usually, and every day I do one of these, it always helps. So a good conversation good. is always welcome. So I'll just thank you on a personal level. Yeah, yeah, man. Some it's it's a it's a weird time, isn't it? It's very strange. It's very very strange. But I feel hopeful that it could be a, a turning point. Hopefully, we who knows. But well, I uh, as like bleak. I mean, certainly the the social justice issues right now um as bleak as they seem i i do believe that i mean as as bleak as everything is i do believe it's actually better than it's ever been also 
which is right. which is a, which is horrible because it's not good. Yeah. But the <laughs> fact that people like the fact that what has been happening for decades is actually being made public and the fact that like we're we're actually like questioning these 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 huge systemic problems that like a lot of people have kind of known that there is like yeah it's like it's it's bad but it's getting better i mean it's like how much how bad could it be you know right um right. like like I, I that that we're actually questioning them i mean it's like you know i always kind of i think of like this metaphor of like killing a snake right that that it doesn't just go away right you if you're trying to kill a snake it's like it writhes up in that last minute and it fights back like crazy and i i view trump's presidency as like the hopefully the beginnings of the death throes of the snake we're all trying to kill you know i i was kind of thinking i was thinking a swan song yeah yeah you know yeah, yeah. I, Although, I was i was hopefully thinking that in 2016 um I, I definitely thought of it thought it then too and i was like oh this is gonna get feel like it's getting worse but i think this is actually progress but it could be progress in the way that like oh the destruction of the roman empire was progress <laughs> you know what i mean exactly no it's like, yeah it's totally. not gonna be good yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna be good for me personally probably but it's probably good for the the planet and it's probably good for the nation mm -hmm. ultimately maybe i hope so i don't know i'm definitely an optimist and i try to try to see to see the the, the positive in things but mm -hmm. Is there anything that you want to scream from the modular mountaintops before we, we get off? Um, no, I don't know. Um, I, uh, I don't know. It's a crazy time to be, to be in electronic music now too. Like the, the possibilities are so huge. I guess what I'm excited about is what's going to come next because now it feels like the the outsidery uncommon thing that we all were into has become so ubiquitous that mm -hmm. um there has to be a new tool coming that or all that already exists. Maybe it's AI that yeah. um that you know that people are using or are going to use that that is going to supplant this, you know, that's going to feel like what modular felt like in the nineties or something, you know, uh -huh. that like yeah. just the weirdos <laughs> were doing it. Um, but I do, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that what the modular world feels like it has done is started from a place of pure nostalgia and then has sort of circled back around and said, no, actually, okay. So the old instruments were fun, but let's take what was good about them and let's take what we've learned in the meantime and let's like try to learn from maybe like user interface mistakes that were made along the way and like sort of take this old user interface and and combine it with new sound making possibilities. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing what's happening right now. Um, mm -hmm. And even in like the short time that I've been into it, you know, like 15 years or something, does the, the growth and the change of the community. I guess I would love to see, I, I always love it when like um, systems are democratized too. And mm -hmm. I, and I, and, you know, modular is more, more affordable and available now than it ever has been, especially inside the computer. And I love the way that the computer has kind of democratized making music uh, and more of that 
would be great. You know, and I, and I also, I, yeah, there's like a, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not one to talk in this room, but there's like a fetish, fetishization still of like, oh, I need to have this gear or I'm not going to make good mm-hmm. music that also I think needs to go away. And it is, I mean, if you look at the people who are actually making music for a living, you know, like the, by all means, whatever means necessary to get yeah, the thing. That's yeah. I, I've noticed that from the people I've talked on the show. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. There's no precious. I mean, that's actually that's a that's a place that clipping like differs from, I think mainstream rap production is there is like a preciousness of, uh, we we go out of our way to do things, at a, at a way that, like at a specific level of like, um, quality and like an, an ethos in the making making of sounds that we have created for ourselves. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. make other music that way, but we do not use like presets or loops or anything in like clipping music and we if we have like an insane idea of how a sound should feel that involves like this incredibly complicated and time-consuming and challenging recording process we will do that thing as opposed to fake it Mm -hmm. you know like we have to and we've made like that's the that that's a thing i actually don't like is this idea that 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 here i mean here we go again sorry but like this idea (laughs) that like um the first idea is the best idea and improvisation is better than is inherently better or more interesting than writing things down and that like the simplest path is always the best path right um i don't think that's true and i think that encourages like a kind of laziness and i, I and i totally definitely agree i, totally I definitely agree. Know... i just haven't really maybe said it too much cuz i'm i feel like a lot of people are on the other side of that but well i, I mean 100% agree with i that. definitely understand overcomplicating things to the point of obscuring the original idea right that really all mm-hmm. you, like that what you really all you're working with when you're making art i think about this like in movies all the time right is that after after the screenwriter or really after the initial incep- like conception of what the story is or what the, what the like kernel of the idea is all anybody can do after that point is try not to ruin it right it's like you, <laughs> you you're <laughs> like if that initial idea is bad you're kind of just screwed but you can never like you can never like make a bad idea into a good idea by like polishing it right this polishing a turn mm-hmm. mentality but like you be, right but you can ruin you can easily ruin a great Definitely. idea by not doing it right and I, and I think about that in like in studio terms all the time too right i would rather hear a great song poorly recorded you can you can't you can ruin a great song with a bad recording but you cannot make a bad song good with a good recording right right um, and so, and, you know, and we definitely like when we have like ideas, like our song run for your life that involved playing, we, we made six different beats for it and played them out of cars while we drove by like microphones. We had to go out like four different times to record all that stuff. It took forever. You know, we had to be sure that that was actually going to work and that it was actually going to be right before we did it. Um, Wait, is that the car? Is that the one where the car drives by left to right, and then yeah. like the beat yeah. from the car syncs up? Like that is fucking genius, dude. <laughs> I was listening to that last night on headphones, and I was just like, Jesus fucking Christ! Man. <laughs> that that was so, <laughs> so hard good. to do. Um, I mean, we knew it was going to be hard, but it was not. It was so much harder than we thought it was going to be. Um, and I had to like beat match the Doppler effect so that David's rapping actually speeds down, speeds up, it slows down as the car passes and stuff. Oh whoa! I didn't think so. I, I thought to... maybe you guys made the beat and then recorded a car and then just made it sound like it. But that was actually a beat from a car passing. Oh yeah, 
Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes it even more impressive. Yeah. Also, I mean, I know we were trying to sign off here, but one more thing that I noticed that, that was impressive to me, and at first I was like, I hope this stops soon. I was listening to your song. that Basically, for the first minute and a half, the only thing that the beat is is just the alarm clock. Yeah. <clears throat> and it happens so long, and then it becomes like a part of a chord that shifts up, and I was, and I was like, oh, my God, are they... I felt like you guys were reclaiming a sound that is universally hated. That's exactly like the, reclaiming it. That was and exactly turning the point. it around and making it into something you like. That was exactly the point. Is like to 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 like to be like, well, what's a sound in everyday life that everybody sort of instinctively hates, and let's mm-hmm. let's use that, you know? Because like, because 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 also like you know, feedback and noise and uh, the like the 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 sort of sound palette of like noise music has stopped to be has stopped being as like sonically offensive as it might have been at the beginning right because we're all so familiar mm-hmm. with it it has really invaded you know popular popular music and popular culture in a way and so i was like but the, here okay so that song that alarm clock sound is a perfect example of like mine and bill's roles and my like propensity to make things kind of silly or stupid and uh-huh. his propensity to rein things in is when I pitched that song idea, the verses were an alarm clock. And then when we got to the end of the verse, you would hear the snooze button getting hit. And then we would uh-huh. just be in a field recording and the hooks were like really sleepy in a field recording. And then you would hear like a leaf blower and like a lawnmower and like a car alarm and uh-huh. like the sounds of the neighborhood would build back up. And then the alarm would go off again to signal a new verse. And it was going to be like, it wasn't just the alarm clock. That sounds awesome. <laughs> but it's so silly, you know? Like, it's such, uh-huh. a, it's such a little, like, theater piece, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> As yeah. opposed to just be like, no, let's just, like, lean into the alarm song. But that's another one. Like, that's one of the few... This doesn't happen as much anymore, but it used to be that every so often a handful of clipping beats were things that I made entirely by myself. And then Bill would come in and be like, oh, it needs this one thing. And he was 100% right and... That was his contribution, but it made it just like that much better every time. Mm-hmm. And that's one mm-hmm. of those that I made the whole thing. And then he came in and then he's like, oh, it's, there needs to be one like low, barely audible like impact at, at every change, like every time there's a change. And he was right. And it like mm-hmm. really brought the whole thing together for me. That song was also very hard to make. That's not a loop. They all sound like they're really hard to make. That's not a loop, the <laughs> alarm clock. That's a, that's a straight recording. And the alarm clock, it was almost an A, but it was out of tune. It was like not uh-huh. quite 440 and even because you hear it so much on repetition and we know that sound so well, like even when I pitch shifted it like eight Hertz or whatever it was, I could hear artifacts in it and it didn't sound like the sound anymore to me. It was like, I, I assumed, really? I assumed I could pitch shift it and it would be fine. So instead I had to tune everything else down, down it, whatever it was, wow. 11 cents or whatever <laughs> it was. Cause it's also like, um, cause some of those like chords are pitch shifted like a sampler instrument that I made just out of that sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I did something really dumb, like made like a 30 step round Robin, like sampler instrument out of that thing. Cause I had so many of them, you know? Um, <laughs> and then, but, but then the rest of it is modular actually. Like I, I like spent a lot of time like FFT and looking at the alarm sound and like tried to resynthesize it on the modular, which ended up sounding a lot better than the pitch shifted recordings. Okay. But then I had to tune, I had to detune the whole modular to get it to, line up and then we and then marielle (laughs) who sings the hook uh she had to sing 
you know, slightly flat. Right, um, right. And I don't remember if we did any Melodyning. I don't think we had to because she's very, very good. But um, mm-hmm. but if we did, we had to tell Melodyne. Because, like, Melodyne was like, this whole thing is flat, you know, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that took me on a real journey. It was actually this morning. I heard it. I heard it start, and I was like, "Oh, the classic using the alarm clock sample." And I remember thinking, "Like, I hope it stops soon." And then it it was kind of like one of those things that isn't funny until it goes on for so long that it like a joke that becomes yeah. funny, and then it goes on past the point of funny and becomes funny again. It was like that. It took me on that journey, but not with comedy, but with actually like enjoying the use of the sound. And I was like, and I thought to myself, just based off of everything that I've been hearing from everything I've listened to for the past few weeks from you, I'm like, this seems very intentional. And I felt like you guys were like, we're going to make you like this horrible sound. So yeah, I'm glad I was right about that. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to do a follow-up sound that's like a car alarm. You know, that's the like the cycle of the like the four sounds that like the most common car alarm does. But that, uh-huh. I don't know, that feels, it feels like we did that. It feels jokey. I don't know. Yeah. There, but like, you know, like the car driving by from Run For Your Life, that was an idea we had like when we were making Mid-City. So these ideas, okay. these ideas will sit for a long time sometimes too. Mm-hmm. So there's always like a pile have like of, a notebook that you keep them in or just kind of? No, bombs? we should. I should write them down. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> Well, man, right on. I've I've got to get ready for work, but um, I could sit here and talk for another two hours. Cool. Yeah, thank I you should, so much for your I time. Should get to I work really too. appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, uh, of course. All right, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Podular Modcast. Thank you to our guest Jonathan Snipes from Clipping. I really appreciate uh, your time. Um, I also want to say thank you to Needham Woodworks, uh, not only for making my case, but for making the most beautiful Eurorack cases uh, on either side of the Mississippi. Um, please go check out patchworks.com, P-A-T-C-H-W-E-R-K-S.com for those open box deals if they're still there. Um, but if not, they got a bunch of great stuff, and uh, I love that place, and it would make me so happy to find out that you got stuff from Patchworks. Thank you to Recovery Effects for the Motormatic. I'm having a hell of a time with that thing. I just love recovery of that stuff so much. And uh, Void Modular, Sirius is Veil. Please check that out. It's a really fun dual or stereo filter. I think that's about it. Uh, modular Seattle released uh, the, the second Modular Seattle album and the second EP out on Self Center Records right now. So go to selfcenterrecords.bandcamp.com and order yourself a cassette. Really, really great music there. Um, I feel like there's more things to talk about, but isn't there always? And you know what? We're going to save that until next week. Boom!